This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. Imagine a place of your own in your name. A place where all your stuff is. Where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. Wow, Stevie. I'm speechless. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we say it a lot that that could have been our best episode ever, but I truly truly mean that and i mean it's not because of our hosting skills it's very much because of Raphael rowe we didn't have to do anything we just sat back and let Raphael tell his life story a man that went to prison for 12 years wrongly for a murder he did not commit and since coming out he's hosted a netflix show where he travels around the world and visits the world's toughest prisons and trust me when i say you don't want to miss this one the stories are insane from both his time in prison and then his time in other prisons. Amazing. Check it out. We're going to throw to a trailer now and then you can have the full two and a half hour episode. Enjoy. I got up, rubbed my eyes, lit a cigarette, went downstairs to find out what the fuck was going on. And I was met with these guns and men in balaclavas pointing these guns at me, telling me to get the fuck down on the floor. And then everything broke loose from then. I was taken to a police station... I was interrogated for three days and I was being accused of murder and a series of robberies that had happened around the M25 over a period of one night during the 70s. You know, people would be fitted up, especially people from... A lot of racially motivated. Absolutely. I didn't think about that at the time. As I say, I grew up in the world of black and white, so I didn't ever experience racism in that sense. But here I was in a police station being accused of crimes that two white men and one black man had committed. Mm. My two co-defendants, who ended up serving as much years in prison as me, were black as well. So, in essence, what happened was the evidence was ignored because they wanted a conviction, and it appeased the media at the time. Imagine for a moment three black guys in the dock being accused of these crimes. The victims are standing up in the fucking dock telling the jury and anybody else that was watching the trial that the perpetrator was white. And you'd think at that moment they would quash our convictions, not even... But that didn't happen. The prosecution was skilled in saying they must have been mistaken. And they do it so good, they convinced the jury not to believe the actual victims. I was broken. You you know, I'm just being sent to prison as a 20-year-old man for the rest of my life for something I didn't do. Mm. And so it had a, a, a serious effect on me then... But I was able to channel that anger and and the wrong into fighting from that day on. I'm an investigative journalist and I report issues that I think matter and can make a difference. That's what I really do. You're the um, the presenter behind Netflix's Inside the World's Toughest Prisons. Have I got that right? Is you that... have, Inside the World's Toughest Prisons. So I host the show, yeah, I kind of embed myself in these prisons around the world. Yeah, quite harrowing stuff. I mean, if you saw... What I've seen in Brazil in terms of the the bodies piled high without their heads in the prison following the fighting between the two gangs, it's horrifying. You've seen that? Fucking hell. And And then I meet the guys who are involved. Paraguay and Takumbu 
shocked me nearly all of the prisoners that I met openly carried knives and I'm talking about big knives that yeah. they talked about using I mean they talk about one person gets killed in that prison every two weeks you've been that person in prison that people look at as a monster when you know you're not so Jack if this country had its way I would have been hung when the tabloid newspapers were, were calling for this M25 gang to be caught they were calling to bring back hanging so they could have hung me if I was in America I'd have been dead how long was your original sentence for? I was sentenced to life imprisonment with an additional 54 years without parole. So basically, if I hadn't won my conviction, I'd still be in there now. Jack Mates Happy Hour. Hello guys and welcome back to Jack Mates Happy Hour. Now Stevie... Yeah. I don't know how happy this hour or two is going to be because we've had an array of guests on from YouTubers, comedians and Randolph. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, today we've, we, we've got a man who's, when I say he's pretty much done it all, I don't think I'm underselling it. Um, or I don't, I, no, I should say I don't think I'm overselling it. I think he literally has done it all. We've got a guy called Raphael Rowe, who's a presenter, journalist, documentarian, which is a word I've been trying to re, trying to rehearse. Document, say it. Documentarian. Documentarian. Is that right? Yeah. Right. Raph. He worries. Can I call you Raph or is it Raphael? Raph, Raphael, whatever you want. How the hell are you, sir? I'm good, actually. It was um, a little drive up here, but it was good. I've been looking forward to this. I've been listening to some of your previous podcasts, and this is quite exciting. It's exciting to be here, appealing to a completely different audience to what I normally draw in. Right, yeah, because you were saying you, you're, you're very much TV personality, aren't you? I right. am, yeah. YouTube and, and the sort of social media thing, I'm kind of catching up with it. I've never really watched YouTubers and all that kind of thing. It kind of passed me by. I was so focused on BBC. That was my platform, so YouTube is new to me and what you guys do right fair well i'm sure we'll have a little bit of a chat about youtube but before we move on we should just say you're um how how, how would you describe what you what you do do now obviously you, you you came from tougher beginnings you um you were sentenced to a murder that you 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 didn't commit and uh, since coming out of prison many many moons ago you've turned your hand and and uh, you, you're you're now a journalist are you? how how would you describe what I, I, I'm a current. I'm, I'm currently a host, or I'm a presenter, which is slightly different from being what I've been for many years, which is a reporter, an investigative journalist. So I've strutted my stuff, investigating issues from corporate companies to individual criminals or stories that I think matters. So that's the kind of thing I've done throughout the whole of my career, and I was very lucky to get down onto that. So I'm an investigative journalist, and I report issues that I think matter and can make a difference. That's what I really do. Right, and and more recently, you're you're the um, the presenter behind um, Netflix's Inside the World's Toughest Prisons. Have I got that right? Is you that... have, Inside the World's <laughs> Toughest Prisons. So I host the show, yeah, I kind of embed myself in these prisons around the world. Yeah, quite harrowing stuff. That's, that's putting it lightly, mate. I mean, I spent the uh, the vast majority of yesterday just binge watching the series. I like to leave all my research to the last minute. I'm a model pro. This is probably the most research you've ever done, though. So Yeah, yeah, because I, I, I wasn't familiar with your work. And then um, we were, we were thankfully we were offered you because as soon as I started fucking researching it, I was like, this guy has, has, has pretty much done and been everywhere. Now, before we get to, we'll probably get to the Netflix 
Netflix show in the second half of the show. I want to find out a bit more about you and a bit more about your your life. Now, I know you you were born in South East London. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I was actually born in a flat on the Woolworth Road, which is in South East London. So I wasn't even born in a hospital. You know, I was quick to come out. Right. I was born on the King and Queen Street on Woolworth Road, which is in South East London. Mm. Um, and I'm a true Cockney, although I changed the tone of my voice over the years of being a BBC journalist. Once upon a time, I was, you know, um, a South East Londoner. I still am a South East Londoner, but I was born on the Woolworth Road in a house. Um, you know, my, my dad's Jamaican, my mum's English. So I come from a mixed um, cultural background. Uh, and, and I grew up in Camberwell in South East London. So I'm a Londoner. I still live in London. I still live in South East London. I don't mm. know anywhere else. So that that's my kind of backstory, you know, growing up in a council estate with my three sisters, my mum and dad, as simple as that. Yeah. What, what, what was it? What was it? What was it like? Was it? Did you have a bit of a rough upbringing, or or, or was was it a fairly was it a fairly happy childhood? That I think you had? I, I think like most people who grow up in in social housing. My my background was you know we didn't have any money. My dad was a labourer. My mum was a housewife. She had three kids, four kids actually. My three sisters and me mm. at almost the same time, sort of a year apart. My dad was banging away quite. Quickly. <laughs> <laughs> he, he didn't give my poor mum. <laughs> didn't give my mum any time to rest you know so out popped my sisters and then I came along and I was the only boy and I was the last one so yeah I grew up on a council estate in social housing we didn't have much money it was it was a tough neighborhood and I grew up not long after I sort of was born we moved into Campbellwell again another social flat you know um, in a block of flats and 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 I was one of those kids that kind of grew up amongst other kids. I was very fortunate in my upbringing in that everyone around me came from a different background. We, we, we had the, the smelly kid, the, the fat sort of kid. With, <laughs> I didn't look at you deliberately. <laughs> but, you know, oh, we're going to have a fun two hours. You know he's listened to it when he knows he's allowed to bully me. <laughs> he said smelly and fat, look straight at you. But we had the tall kid. We, we had a bit of everything, or I did. So I was very fortunate that everyone around me came from a different kind of background. The black kid, the white kid, the Scottish kid, the Irish kid. So I, I was very fortunate that I was in a very diverse community and that made a big difference in my outlook in life you know yeah. but but we had nothing as a family we we had nothing you know I think my biggest toy when I was a kid was a robot you know I remember my <laughs> mum coming home one day this is like a childhood memory she came home and she gave me a, a robot and it was my I sort of idolized this toy but it didn't work you know it didn't matter that it didn't work it was just the gift from my mum because we didn't have very much did you ever have a spud gun do you remember them I do remember a spud gun I used to use it yeah I used to stick it into my mum's potatoes <laughs> fire it away I think I bought one not too long ago for my son actually and he kind of looked at me and kind of put it down never used it I think that know? was the reaction I got when I was a kid and I got one you're looking at me Stevie like you don't know what a spud no, gun no I know what a spud gun is it's just funny that that went into your mind what, what's yeah. a spud gun <laughs> <laughs> See, he it's, asked it's the... a gun you put into a potato and shoot at people <laughs> Raphael asked the hard hitting questions we've seen his shows we know what he's about yeah, yeah. what was your what was your what were your dreams and aspirations as a kid because I, I, I I didn't have any to be a footballer I loved football you know, I was one of those, we come down from the block of flats and in front of, of all of our houses or flats was a patch of grass. And so we'd all congregate on this space and we'd kick a ball and from morning to night. So wanting to be a footballer was probably 
the biggest aspiration I had. And I was a good footballer. I was little. I was, you know, low sense of gravity, if you like. And yeah. I, I was a good footballer. And that was the only aspiration because it was the only thing that was around me. Boxing, sports, that was the kind of thing that I watched as a kid. I was exposed to a lot of that. So being in the sport arena, if you like, is what I wanted to do. What position? Central midfielder. Oh, engine room. Engine room, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that was my position. It still is today, only I don't play football as much as I'd like to. But. Well, we've, we've seen you kick a ball about a bit over the time on Netflix and some of these prisons that you've been in and whatnot. I scored and... a goal in one of them. I scored a goal. <laughs> Not an easy thing because goalkeeper weren't really nice. Asher, I think his name was in the German prison and, and he was a bit of a character anyway. But yeah, love the love of football, the love of sports. I used to think I was John Conte when we used to box in the, in the porch way, you know, so mm. that was my thing. Did you... When you, um, you your life obviously took quite a drastic turn as you as you become a a young adult, and um, we're, we're going to get onto that shortly. Um, it's like putting this in the nicest way. Was you a bit of a naughty kid? Because I know a few of uh, a few of people I grew up with, they've taken the wrong turn in life and stuff. And often the ones that have like got gone to prison and 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 stuff weren't always the naughty kid. They might have just mixed with the wrong crowd. Now I know that sounds like a typical question, but I'm quite interested because obviously you've done loads in your life. You seem like an absolutely lovely fella now. But what 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 were then? What what was you like as a teenager? I guess is what I'm getting at. I, I came from a, a law-abiding family, if you like. So none of my family got in trouble with the law but when I hit the age of about 15 and 16 before that let's say when I was 11 12 I started getting into trouble in school so I was hanging around with the wrong kids so I was good at school I was intelligent but I didn't take to school education wasn't my thing so by the time I hit the age of 15 and I was smoking spliffs and I was breaking into cars that was my thing you know they in those days had kind of car stereos and you could break into a car, nick a car stereo and send it or sell it to someone else. And Mm. and that was how I made money. So I was a bit of a thief, more breaking into cars and that progressed actually into burglary. So I, by the age of 16, 17, I was breaking into people's houses, breaking into factories, nicking things. That's what I was doing. And it was to make money. There was no other motive. It was simply because I had nothing. I wanted something. I didn't have any prospect of getting a job or anything like that. You know, the environment that I came from. And it was interesting when I listened to one of your earlier podcasts, The Copper, Mm. who talked about being a copper in the 70s in Peckham and and their whole demeanour at the time was to sort of fly in on people. And I was one of those victims. It was a bit later than the 70s in the early 80s. Mm. But I was one of those sub that the police would often jump out of these SBG vans and arrest us or they'd stop us and question us for no reason. But yeah, I grew up as a little a little tear away. You know, I, I could fight and I'd get into fights. And I, I, I wouldn't say that I hanged around with, with gangs, but I had a group of friends that you would today describe as a gang, but we were like a very close-knit um, group of guys. Um, and all the older guys around us were were our mentors. And these were criminals. These were people that had been to prison. And funnily enough, we'd look up to them and think, you're tough, you're hard because you've been to prison. And mm. that was our aspiration, if you like, yeah. that if you go to prison and you come out, you get more respect. It's as simple as that. Mm. I think that's how it is, though, isn't it? You do. I, I remember I've, I've never really been a naughty kid, to be fair. I'm just some like ginger lad from, from Norwich. But I think you do look up at the, the harder ones, the ones that sort of give you shit. And you do think like they're that that's they've they're they're the achievers in a way don't you do you know what i mean 
not me. Uh, <laughs> I've never had a detention in my life. I'm the worst person for this. I, I, I've had lots of uh, uh, detentions, but it's really, I think it's really about the fact that there is no other mentor around you. There's no one else you can look up to. So what you do see is people that have money through selling drugs or committing crime. And the only education you get from those people is what they do. So you think that's what you need to do because mm. there was no one, you know, my parents, as I say, were law abiding citizens. And so my dad would often tell me if I get in trouble, I'm going to end up in prison and all I get is bread and water. Um, and he was very disciplinarian, you know, a Jamaican. So he was quite hard on me and anybody around us. But at the same time, they had their own lives. And once I got into my own sort of circle of friends, I did my own thing. And that was a circle of friends who were caught up in, I would describe it as petty crime, nothing serious. The older guys were probably into something more serious. Mm. But I lived in an environment where petty crime was the way forward, if you like. Right. And, and I just followed in people's footsteps. When when you were stealing these like car stereos and mm. stuff, that's that's fascinating to me because I would shit myself if if I if I had to do stuff like that, like was it was it was it not scary or because you started with like smaller things and got bigger and bigger, was it just like a natural progression? Man, you bring back memories. I'm, I'm just I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm having flashbacks of what I did, and I will give you a description. So what we would have is these old files, you know, like files, like metal files that you get. You probably don't know this, but you do. You you had these metal files, so you go up to a car. And in the corner of the window, you get this this kind of file or some piece of metal and you tap the corner of the window and the whole of the car window would shatter. And then you put the window through, you dive through, you grab the stereo, yank it out the wires and you'd be pulling and pulling and pulling, probably cut your arms and stuff. You pull the stereo out and then you'd run. And then you'd find someone to sell it either at a garage or somebody who's got a car and they want big speakers and big stereos and you've got this stereo because that's what it was. And that's right. what I used to do. Wow. And uh, now we've taught our audience <laughs> how to steal from a yeah, car. Yeah, but I mean, if, you, if you're stealing stereos now, you're not going to get much money yeah, for that. Yeah, you'd be going some you? old cars. Yeah, steal the car. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the, the only thing I used to steal when I was younger, you remember them little dust caps that they used to have on cars? Like, I think it, it was... A, Why was that such a thing? That was a big thing. Yeah. When we were younger, that, people would steal Yeah, those I'm not on cars. about the hubcaps. No. The little tiny little the, dust... The little rubber things that were on the... Off the yeah, wheel. What did you do with them? Well, because in like the early 2000s, do you not remember when there was... Um, they didn't do the... Sh- the people. Some people wouldn't have the rubber ones anymore, so they were getting like silver-like dyes. You'd get like, cool ones. Yeah, like little diamond... <laughs> like, a, <laughs> like a little dice. Yeah, do like, you remember? Yeah, this is cool. <laughs> do you remember that? Yeah. That... Yeah, so I think I just had a huge collection of them. That was the naughtiest thing I ever did. I do remember once I, I stole a humbug penny sweet from Asda and my dad grounded me for it. I used to shop if I used to come home from school, so I used to go to a school in Camberwell, and then on my way home there was a co-op, and I used to go into the co-op and nick curly whirlies, snicker bars, well, they were called marathons at the time, <laughs> and, and, and in my bedroom at home I had a drawer full of chocolate, and it wasn't about not being able to get the chocolate. It was just being able to do it. I, it was exciting. It was exciting to thieve and, and get these chocolates. So I had a drawer full of chocolates. And once when my dad found out, I got in serious trouble. <laughs> serious I can trouble. imagine there is quite a thrill, I think. I think I probably had a thrill when I nicked that humbug at like nine years old. Look at me. I'm sat in a room with Raphael Rowe and I'm like, I nicked a humbug. <laughs> <laughs> Not impressed by that. You've met some pretty fucking hard people. I have since, yes. <laughs> now, obviously... Um, 
the uh, you, you got sentenced to a much worse crime. Is worse a word? <laughs> Just say it worse. It is now. A much, <laughs> much worse a, crime. A much worse crime. I think when you was 19 years old, what, what was it? Was it murder and, and robbery that you were... So, so, so it was a progression. So when I was 17, 18 years old, I was sort of now, I'd moved away from home. I was living with a best mate of mine and together we were like a duo of thieves. You, you know, we were shoplifting and we were burglaring. That was probably the mm. most serious things we were doing. Mm. Um, and it was just purely to make money, smoke weed. We were like night owls. So we'd be out thieving during the day, shoplifting, or we'd break into people's houses, um, which I regret. Let's make that clear. I regret doing that. But it was the only thing I knew at the time and the only way of earning money. Um, and then when I was 18, 19 years old, me and my best mate, Michael, we were living in a flat together. And one day, out of nowhere, I'm in bed, I'm fast asleep, and um, I hear loud noises. Do you want me to go into the detail now? Oh, mate, all, all of the details, yeah. I'm, I'm in bed. Um, I, I've probably been sort of banging some bird the night before <laughs> because that's how I lived my life. You know, I was thieving during the day, meeting girls at night, and yeah. I lived a life like that. I was a happy-go-lucky teenager doing what... People from my environment did. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, for and we sure. had quite a reputation. We had quite a reputation around us in, in the sort of southeast London area. So the triangle of Peckham, Brixton, and Camberwell, we had quite a big reputation as this little this little firm of criminals who, mm. who, who, who were game for anything. I, I bet you felt like you kind of ran the area, don't you? Because a lot of. Yeah, well, among the people that knew us, I think we had a reputation that, you, you, you know, we, we had each other's backs. I, I, I you know, I emphasise that we were not a gang because we were just individuals who did things that we thought and we kept it within ourselves. Um, but on this morning, at late, early in the hours of the morning on the um, 19th, 15th of 16th, 17th, 18th of December, 1988, I'm in bed, hear these loud noises, my best mate was with his brother downstairs. We were living in this two-part flat and um, I was woken up by loud noises. Now, I thought it was my mate and his brother having an argument. So um, I got up, rubbed my eyes, lit a cigarette, went downstairs to find out what the fuck was going on and I was met with guns being pointed at my face. So I had men at my flat door. I was watching my mate's brother being frog-marched out of the flat and I had these guns and men in balaclavas pointing these guns at me, telling me to get the fuck down on the floor. And I had this cigarette in my mouth, and I remember it distinctly. It was kind of burning down to the butt, so it was burning my lips. And I went to move my hands to move the cigarette, and all hell broke loose. They were screaming that they were going to shoot me if I didn't. So I hit the floor, and before I knew it, I had men all over me. My hands were put behind my back. They were handcuffed with these plastic cuffs, and then I was frog-marched out of my flat. I only had on my boxer shorts. I was taken out of my flat, down some stairs, fell down the stairs. The police officers dragged me, and I remember seeing one of the other residents of one of the flats sort of flat on the floor with a police officer on his back. And he looked up at me and his eyes were terrified, you, you, you know, and that was a terrifying moment. They took me out of the flat and I was put into the back of a, a van and my two flatmates, Michael and his brother, were in the same van. And then a police officer came into the van and he called my name, I identified myself and he told me to come out of the van. And then everything broke loose from there. I was taken to a police station. I was interrogated for three days in, in Surrey, stockbroker belt. And I was being accused of murder and a series of robberies that had happened around the M25 over a period of one night. Wow. That was the first I knew the allegations against me. And then I didn't see That's the outside 
for many years. That's what I was going to say. When that when they've come and they've grabbed you and your life's like been fucking twisted up on its head, when you're being thrown into the back of that van, did did you was this was were these these murders or or, or these um this this robbery was that something that you'd heard about? Did you know about it or did you have no idea what was going on when I, you were? I had no idea. It was national news, so it was on the, on the front page of all the national newspapers: the Sun, the News of the World, and all the kind of mass media broadcasters, the BBC and everything, that the police were hunting these. I found this out later. I didn't know at the time. Yeah. And I didn't pay any attention to the news. You know, I was a happy-go-lucky, fucking what I could when I could, smoking drugs and doing stuff like that. So, no, at the time I was arrested, I had no idea what I was being arrested for. And although I'd had my brushes with the law and I knew that I was involved in criminality, I knew when guns were pointing at me at, at that on that particular occasion that this was far more serious. But there was this kind of... I don't know, this bounce about me at the time that I was still this cocky 20-year-old, 19-year-old. I was still cocky and thought, like, this is nothing to do with me. Um, it was terrifying and it was frightening. Mm. But it's when I was in the police station, when they were interrogating me and asking me questions about a murder and a series of robberies, I got even cockier because I knew I didn't do anything like that. So I, you know, I didn't do that no comment thing that often happens or you see on television. Oh, I was prepared to tell them everything I could possibly tell them about who I was and what I was doing and felt very confident about it. Didn't make any difference. Well, that's literally what I was going to what I was going to ask because you knew you was innocent. I, I, I'd like to think if I was in that situation, I'd tell them everything because obviously you've got nothing to hide. Absolutely. But, but so at what point in, in the process from from that night you, you were arrested and, and obviously when you received the guilty verdict, what at what point did it sink in that you might not be walking out of there again? I think it was almost... I I think it started when that police officer came to that van and called my name because they'd already identified me for some reason. I didn't know it then why. I mean, we found out many years later, but at the point I didn't know. But I think it all started then. When I was being interrogated by the police, they were not interested in my willing to tell them anything. As you say, if you were in that situation, you just kind of blab on where you've been, what you've done, who you've done, what you've done, even confess the things that you had done because you thought this is... Like lesser little, crimes. Or, lesser yeah, lesser yeah. crimes. I mean, I wasn't quite doing that, but I was prepared to do that. Yeah. I think it was when it really dawned on me was after the first two days of interrogation um, where I was being asked where I was, whether I was involved in the murder, and then I was kind of being accused of the murder and robberies, <laughs> and it was serious crimes. And then a police officer said to me one day in the police station that they were taking me to another police station where I'd be charged with these offences. And I'm asking if anybody else has been charged, why are you charging me? You know, it was a scary moment. And they did. They took me from that police station to another police station. They left me in the cell for sort of 24 hours. And I was sort of almost banging my head against the wall, terrified that they were going to charge me with these crimes. And then they did. They came into the cell, took me out of the cell, took me to the sergeant desk. And then they charged me, took my fingerprints, took pictures, did all that they do when they process somebody and charge me with murder, one count of manslaughter or attempted murder and two counts of aggravated robbery. Wow. You make that whole situation sound quite confusing, which obviously it is because you had no idea what was going on at the time. We did say that we did a bit of research on it before. Even reading into it, it all looks very confusing how you even got involved as them thinking that you could have been guilty. Mm. Like each part we were reading through didn't seem to ever point towards you or another one who was that, also that, arrested. That, that kind of detail doesn't materialise until the months go by. So 
when I was charged by the police, I still didn't know what it was they were accusing me of doing. Of course, I knew I was being charged with murder. I knew I was being charged with these other serious offences. And I knew that they were making allegations against me because often during the interviews, the police officers were saying to me that this person's saying this, this person's saying that. They didn't come into the interview and sort of say, we've got your fingerprints or your dad's all over the murder or we've got this forensic evidence or anything like that because that wouldn't have existed didn't exist never did exist so it was all always allegations people pointing fingers at me and saying things about me and that's all they were telling me at the time so that's all I knew at the time and then I'm charged I'm charged with this murder I'm put back in this cell and as you can imagine I go into this kind of munch scream kind of thing where my hands in my head um, and the nightmare had really begun Wow. When you're getting um, interrogated by, by the police and that's the first time that you're learning of the details of the crime in which you're being told that you, you did, what, what, can you go into any of the details of the, of the crime? What, what, what actually was it? Was it, was it um, something to do with the M25-3 gang? Yes, it is. That's what we were called. We were called the M25-3. So it was this kill for kicks gang. So the crimes were this, simple. Right. You, you had um, three men took a car that was stolen. They drove to the scene of the first crime where they came upon two men in a car who were involved in sexual um, acts together. One was an elderly man, one was a young man. During the commission of trying to take their car, the elderly man was beaten, the young man was beaten and they were tied up. The elderly man died of a heart attack during the commission of the crime. The three robbers then took their car and drove to the next crime. Same night, within an hour, they were arriving at another crime where they then broke into this house, attacked the occupants. The younger son in the house, who was in his 30s, he was stabbed um, and nearly died. They took jewellery and money from that property. They stole the car from that property, the three perpetrators, and they went on to another crime the same night within the hour, broke into another house and stole property from those houses as well. They took the two cars that were at the further fence and those were the cars that were discovered the next day being burnt in a field somewhere in Sidcup or something like that. So that's the, the essence of what the crimes were. The murder at the scene of the first crime, the attempted murder and aggravated robbery at the second and the aggravated robbery at the third offence. Wow, that's so ruthless how they did it all in one fucking night. One gang. The most crucial part of this was that when I hadn't been arrested here, so this happened on the 15th, 16th of December, Mm -hmm. in the newspapers the following day, all the details were about the police hunting this this gang, which was now called the M25 gang because the crimes were committed around the M25 orbital. Mm. And the headlines were all that the police were looking for two white men and one black man from the very outset. We mm. hadn't been arrested. And so, and, and this evidence was coming from the victims. And this is key because it's been key from the beginning to the end, which is why your interview with that copper resonates with me because as he made clear during the 70s, you know, people would be fitted up, especially people from... A lot of racially motivated. Yeah, a, 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 absolutely. I didn't think about that at the time. As I say, I grew up in the world of black and white, so I didn't ever experience racism in that sense. But here I was in a police station being accused of crimes that two white men and one black man had committed. Mm. My two co-defendants, who ended up serving as much years in prison as me, were black as well. So in essence, what happened was the evidence was ignored because they wanted a conviction, and it appeased the media at the time. How how did you get involved in the case in the first place? Like, what? Where did the prison, did the police see everything that had happened? 
and somehow get to you and your co-defendants. To this day, we still don't have that information. Oh, we, my we, God. We know what it is. What happened was, and this is the reality, what happened was is the police had an informer who then told them that the people responsible for these crimes lived in this house and that me and my best friend and another man were involved in these crimes. That's why they targeted our house. As little as that? It was as simple as that. He was a police informer and he told them, and this has never been given to us, yeah. but it came out because there was a huge reward and there was a, a secret recording with this witness many, many years later on a BBC Rough Justice programme that were investigating my miscarriage of justice. And during that interview, he confessed to them that he was the one who sent the police to our house. Just turns out that he was the only witness in our case who was white, who had blue eyes and fair hair. And that's important for this reason. All of the victims from the crimes, described one of the perpetrators as having fair hair and blue eyes. Now, we three black guys, as you can see, don't have blue eyes, <laughs> yeah. okay? We, we didn't have blue eyes. But the victims, not just from one scene of crime, but from all the crimes, described the white man as being the leader, the blue eyes and the fair hair. I saw that protruding through his balaclava as I sort of came face to face with him. And those were the headlines, face to face with the Kill for Kicks gangs. Um, yet the police overlooked that. And convicted us. And the only blue eye, fair haired man in my case was this one who sent the police to my address in the first place, which is why we were arrested. Fucking. That's man. mental. How, how would the police. I don't know how to say it, but it's, it's fairly obvious just from that that the police have gone in just because they want anyone to, well, in I, their minds. No, I, 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 I wouldn't say that's what happened. I think the police at the beginning, they targeted the house because it was a house known to be housed by lots of sort of petty criminals yeah. me and other people that live it was a hostel and most of the people that were there had been sent there from the probation service no what happened was the police when they started to investigate actually investigate the crimes by now i'm charged i'm in a prison within a prison in brixton and we'll get to that but yeah. i'm talking about not just being in prison i was in a prison within a prison with the most notorious prisoners you could come across um but during the investigation and the police started to find evidence that pointed away from us, i.e. fingerprints found on the car at the scene of the murder, didn't match any of us, but it matched the blue eye and fair hair guy, we'd already been charged. So rather than go back and reinvestigate and question this individual, they then started to conspire with the witnesses to change their statements. I know that's complex, but it's very simple. Yeah. When the police found the evidence that pointed in another direction, they moved the goalposts to fit us in. So we weren't fitted up, and I distinguish between being fitted up, you know, you get arrested, you get thrown into a police station, and you get fitted up, evidence is planted on you. No, that's not what happened in my case. What happened is the evidence started to point away from us being guilty. Afterwards. Afterwards, once they discovered it, they then started to move the goalpost. It's like it's like they found a key, and then they decided which lock it was going to fit. Yeah, something like that. That's, that's insane. Yeah, one of the things I read was that the fingerprints of two of the guys were found on the car... But then they just said that they were told to move it by you. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. But what you need to but understand... But there's none of your fingerprints, fingerprints on, on the car. There. And there wouldn't be because we weren't involved in the crime. But what they said about the fingerprints being found on the car and then saying that they moved it for us, they didn't offer that information to the police. It's only when the police found the fingerprints on the car and went back to them, and they'd given three or four statements by this point, when the police went back to them and said, your fingerprints were on the car, 
That's why I say they conspired with the witnesses, because they then got the witnesses. This is the police, I believe. They then got the witnesses to change their statements and say, oh, the reason my fingerprints were on the car is because Raphael and his co-defendants asked me to move the car. And that happened on numerous occasions. Evidence like property from the final robbery, from the two cars that I mentioned that were burned in a field, was found at one of his mates, the blue-eyed, fair-haired guy. The property was found at his girlfriend's flat. He put it in his girlfriend's flat. They didn't tell the police that. When the police discovered that bit of information, raided the girl's flat, he then changed his statement or made another statement and say, oh, they asked us to put it there. So every time the evidence pointed in another direction, they changed the goalpost. And that's why I say I was fitted up rather than fitted in. As the evidence pointed away, they then conspired to to fit us in. As as when you're in when you're in the court in front of the jury and and you're hearing all of the, this, Man. I I know what it's. Well, I'm not going to put myself in that position, but I know how frustrated I can be when I get accused of silly, pointless shit that I haven't done. Let alone being up for a fucking murder you had nothing to do with. At what did you? All the way through that court case, did you feel like you were going to get off? Or did it start to think, actually, this is something bigger than me? Like this, Jack, it started long before that. When I was sitting in a prison cell on my own, and, 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 and I emphasised this earlier on, I was an ACAT prisoner, so I was the highest category prisoner, which meant that every time I was taken out of my cell to go for a piss or a poo, I had two prison officers and a another prison officer with an Alsatian dog follow me. That's how dangerous they considered me to be. I was 20 years old. I was in a man's prison, in a prison within a prison. You know, Freddie Foreman and the Richardsons were sort of banged up with me. IRA terrorists, Colombian drug cartels. These are the guys that I was socialising with in that 18-month period before I even got to trial. And it was during that period I always thought at some point they were going to open my cell within a cell and say to me, we're sorry, we made the mistake. In fact, I got a a letter, a really important letter from an ex-girlfriend who'd given some damning evidence against me during my trial saying that she was sorry. So I got this letter. I, they, they, they slip the letters under your door. So when you're in a cell, the prison officers, screws, they come round when they're distributing the, the mail for prisoners. And I got this letter under my door like I did other letters from my family and friends. And I opened this letter and I read the letter and it was from an ex-girlfriend who was apologising to me for giving false evidence to the police. And I thought that was it. That was it. Ka-ching. Here it is, somebody admitting that they've told a lie. I gave that to my lawyer. That didn't get me out. So for 18 months, I sat in a prison cell (sighs) discovering every day new bits of information, working on my own case by myself in that cell, reading the Archibald, which is the equivalent to the Bible in law, um, trying to understand more about what was happening to me. Um, And then we get into the dock, And I'm hearing the victims stand up. Imagine for a moment, three black guys in the dock being accused of these crimes. The victims of the crimes. There wouldn't be no crimes without the victims. The victims are standing up in the fucking dock telling the jury and anybody else that was watching the trial that the perpetrator was white. And you'd think at that moment they would quash our convictions, not even... But that didn't happen. The prosecution was skilled in saying they must have been mistaken. And they do it so good... They convinced the jury not to believe the actual victims. 
Oh my god! Do you think stuff like that still happens in the UK, or do you think that was when a? Well, I, I know obviously racism is fucking always going to happen, um, but do you think it was more prevalent then? Was it when was that? Was that in the nineties or? That was in the early nineties. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that was that was like the main motivation behind that? Well, you you, you mentioned racism. Racism was an element of what happened to me. You know, the arrest, the charging, and and the preparedness to to continue pursuing innocent men. But it was more about the criminal justice system right. getting it wrong and not being prepared to accept that they got it wrong. You know, arrogance, one, arrogance yeah. is, is is part of it. But it's mm. you know, it, it 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 can be harder to admit that they got it wrong than to pursue a wrongful conviction. It would be difficult for the police to have turned around and say we made a mistake here and we're going to own up to that. They don't do mm. that. They never do that. They don't do it today. They didn't do it then. I mean, it's evident in that police officers have never been charged in my case or any other case for the crimes that they commit. The Floyd thing going on right now you know mm. there's a lot of hoo-ha around the Black Lives Movement and all that and that comes down to the police officers thinking they are above the law and that happened in my case and it still happens today. Didn't the ju- I know I'm going to move ahead a bit here I want to go back to prison life but didn't the judge even once you were set free didn't, didn't even declare you as innocent then? No, didn't apologise but this wasn't the same judge this was the appeal court judges and that's all about damage limitation you know we're going to let them out are you going to let out guilty men and then say um but they're not innocent because it was a damage limitation exercise we'd won we'd proven that we hadn't committed these crimes the european court had decided unanimously that we'd been denied the right to a fair trial because a lot of the evidence was never given to us to present at our trial to the jury. Had Mm. they been aware of that evidence, they probably would never have reached the conviction that they did, you know, sending me to prison for the rest of my life. Sorry, how long was your original sentence for? Um, I was sentenced to life imprisonment with an additional 54 years. So without parole. So basically, if I hadn't won my conviction, I'd still be in there now. Wow. That's fucking terrifying. Can you imagine when you're you're innocent and the judge is telling you you're going to prison for the rest of your life? Not only is he holding it, just as you're about to turn and scream and shout, he says, hold on, 15 years, 15 years, 15 years, and then another eight years on top of that. So you've got a life sentence, which means you're condemned to prison for the rest of your life. And then he adds another 54 years on top of that. How did that not break you right then and there? Or did it? Do you, do you know what? I, 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 it's hard to think back to that moment, but obviously I screamed, I shouted, and I did everything you would possibly do as an innocent man, saying, you got this fucking wrong. My family were crying. Even some of the prosecution and, and, and defence lawyers were shocked by the verdict, to be honest. I mean, mm. people say that, but I think it was true. Mm. I think I was so angry that I channeled that anger. I mean, I was broken. You say, was I? Of course I was broken. You, you know, I'm just being sent to prison as a 20-year-old man for the rest of my life for something I didn't do. Mm. And so it had a, a, a serious effect on me then. But I was able to channel that anger and, and the wrong into fighting from that day on. Right. I, I hope this doesn't come across as an insensitive question, but something I, 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 I've often pondered because I'm so far removed from any, any kind of like criminality and prison and whatnot. I always think if, if I was in your shoes and you hear these stories all the time of innocent people going down, I'd, like, for example, to, to put it into YouTube terms, right? So uh, recently, like, um, a lot of YouTubers have been called out for... Um, sort of like sexual misconduct with their fans and stuff like that. Now, obviously, it goes without saying that I've never been involved in any of that. Of course right? not. That, but I always think when these... Because YouTubers have been called out and they've come out and made videos, I don't even know who this person is. Now, I was having a conversation with my girlfriend the other day and I was thinking, if some random girl did that to me, 
by default, there's going to be a large portion of online people that believe it. And I, I and, and, and I wouldn't judge those people for, for believing it. You're hearing it from somebody who's quite distressed. I've started to believe some of some of the YouTubers that I like that, that have come out and said they, they don't. So what I'm getting at is when you're there and the whole world thinks you've done it, the press are put, putting whatever they want about you. How certain are you that even your own family believe be, believe you? Does that make sense? I hope that doesn't come across. No, and and it's and it's the right question because there were many occasions where I sat down in the visiting hall inside the prison with my mum, my dad, and my sisters. And you could see they were questioning. You know, they knew I was a little bit of a terror away, but they knew I wasn't a murderer. And they obviously asked me the question outright, you know, was you involved? Did you get involved? Did you do this? Did you do that? And I'd always say no. But surely there was a doubt in their head. Initially, there would be. Mums and mums, and mums will always say, you know, my son didn't do that, my daughter didn't do that, and mm. I believe them. End yeah. of story. Yeah. Um, but yeah, without a doubt, they would have believed everything that they read because it was convincing. You know, we didn't get convicted... Um, because the jury just wanted to, to convict us. You know, the prosecution presented a case that made us look guilty. That's mm. what they do. Yeah. You, you know, would I have been sat in that dock and found somebody guilty when the overwhelming evidence suggested that the crimes were committed by people that didn't even look like the people in the dock? Bearing in mind, as you see me now, I wasn't like this back in those days. I had dreadlocks as well. Yeah, I've seen my pictures, be- yeah. Is that, I was a good-looking guy with dreadlocks. <laughs> <laughs> but my, my, my co-defendant had dreadlocks as well. So you had two black guys in the dock with dreadlocks mm. and you had another guy who was much darker than our sort of African appearance, much darker than both me and my co-defendant and yet the jury were being told by the victims that one of the perpetrators had blonde hair and blue eyes. You know, That's how insane. do you get away from that? I mean, you just can't get away from that. So, yeah, people will believe it because the prosecution are very skilled at what they do at convincing people, in my case, the jury, that we were guilty. Wow. We, we just said um, that when you were finally released that they actually never said that you were innocent. Have you been classed as innocent since that day? Well, it depends how you define innocence, because I think, um, you know, uh, uh, it's not a a search for justice or truth and justice. Um, I believe that when the court quashed my conviction, they knew I was innocent. Yeah. Otherwise, they wouldn't have let me go in the same way they kept me in prison for 12 years. So Mm. it was it was a vindication at that moment, even if the judges in their summary of the appeal, when they were quashing my conviction and setting me free, then made a derogatory remark about this is not a. Uh, a declaration of innocence you, you you know why the fuck are you letting out innocent um guilty yeah, men? yeah you know they knew we were innocent but they didn't what we fought them hard we took on the system and we proved that we didn't commit these crimes do you think them saying that stopped them from having to do anything for you guys for being let free so i watch um, a series on netflix called the innocence files yeah, yeah I've and i've it. seen all of that and Every time they got set free, they then get this lump sum of money for being put in. But if they never classed you as innocent, did they not have to do anything for you guys? I was compensated. Okay, so I, I did. was compensated. Today, um, there, there is a, a doctrine in the criminal justice system here in the UK that you will only be compensated if it is proven that you didn't commit the crime. Yeah, that's what I was querying. I was compensated. That tells you a lot, doesn't okay, it? Okay, yeah. yeah. The, the the Home Office and all the officials that then go on and investigate your case before they give you compensation accepted that I must have been innocent and was innocent because they then compensated me. Would you say mm. there's any form of compensation that is enough for what you went through? Not not, not financially. Listen, man, I've, I've been scarred in ways that you couldn't imagine. I've seen things that I shouldn't have seen. I took part in things I shouldn't have taken part in in prison. 
Mm. You, you know, and those things will live with me for the rest of my life. And I think the most important thing is who I am today. Yes, I am this presenter of the Netflix series and I go about doing my stuff in the best possible way I can. But deep down inside me, both physically and mentally, I'm scarred by that experience. And that will never leave me. I've just been very, very clever and strong enough to turn it to my advantage. What was the first night like in prison? That's a hard one to describe because the easy way would to, would to say I, I cried my eyes out. You know, I was like a baby in the corner in a cell. You've got to remember, when I went to prison, it's not like you have an image of prison. Right? You've seen my series and they're, they're horrifying. Mm. But in British prisons, I was in a prison within a prison. So when I went into Brixton Prison, which was the first prison I went in the day after I was charged, or I think on the same day I was charged, when I entered the prison, I was then, as I say, um, surrounded by two prison guards and another prison guard with a dog. I was taken into the sort of the beast of the prison, if you like, which is with the, the wings, the old Victorian wings that you've probably seen on many TV programs, mm-hmm. these kind of cell doors along these landings. When they took me into the prison, I'd already been, I didn't know them, but I'd already been categorised as an ACAP prisoner, which is the highest category prisoner. I was escorted by those prison guards into the main body of the prison. And that's where most people's journey ends. They get put into a cell. I was taken through that corridor. I was... I, I approach these metal steps. They told me to go up these metal steps. So I've come through the prison. I go up these metal steps and there's this big solid door. They bang on the door. The slot opens. The guard peeps out. They say one on. He shuts the slot. He opens the door. I'm then escorted in by these two prison officers. The door's slammed. The slot is shut. Another door is opened. And then I go into the prison block that I'm going to be in. There's about 20 cells. And every one of those cells have either an E for an escapee, signifying outside the cell door that this person is a threat for escaping, or you have an A, which means that this is the highest category prisoner, and I was put in a cell there. When I went into the cell, there's no toilet, there's no sink. All there was was a bed, a cardboard table, and a cardboard chair, and a plastic potty which I was expected to shit and piss in, which I did for the next 18 months. And every day, alongside all the other prisoners, when I was let out with those prisoners, I spent many, many, many months on my own doing this. Um, I'd come out of my cell with my chamber pot, if you like. We called it a piss pot, with my shit and my piss. And I'd go to the slop-out area, and alongside all the other prisoners, I'd tip it in with all the other shit and piss being tipped in there. And then I'd get my toothbrush, brush my teeth over the same piss and shit. And that's what my life was like for 18 months. I have no idea. I would have become the most angry man on the planet, I think. I was angry. I can't emphasise how angry I was. And and that anger lived with me throughout all the years that I was in prison. It kind of manifests itself. You asked the question, what was it like the very first day? I I just remember the the screws putting me in that cell after that kind of escapade of being escorted by two guards going into a prison within a prison. Um, And I never left that space, apart from when I went for visits. When I went on exercise yard, I went on exercise by myself in a cage so it was a small cage and it was really designed for ira prisoners you know so they couldn't bring in helicopters to help them escape so it had you know barbed wire and metal grilling at the top and down the sides and it was a very small 20 by 20 space so i'd walk around that for 18 months on my own occasionally they might let another prisoner come out with me but generally i was on my own and it was a horrible experience. I, I mean, I can't, I can't find the words to describe what it's like to be put in a cell. Not only have I now been convicted of a crime I didn't commit, but I'm going to spend the rest of my life in prison for a crime I didn't commit. At what point do you, do you ever accept that? Do you ever, is there a point where it's been like a week, a month, a year, where you think, 
well, this is my life now then? Because you didn't know that you were going to be proven innocent at any point. But, like, that, but that's the point, Jack. I did. I, I, did. I believe from the beginning I wouldn't be here today. I would have crumbled, broken down and never survived the, 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 that experience. I believed, even after I'd been convicted, even after I'd been condemned to the rest of my life in prison, that this wasn't going to be my life. I wasn't going to allow it to be my life. I was going to use the anger, and I did. That's not to say that over the next four to five years, I spent a lot of time in isolation fighting the system. I didn't accept or embrace what I was going through. So I didn't, I didn't buy into the prison regime, which got me into a lot of trouble. For example... A prison officer would come to my door, he'd open my door and he'd tell me to do something, I'd tell him to fuck off. The consequence of that would be six or seven prison officers would rush into my cell, they'd give me a little beating, they'd bang me up and then they'd take me down to the isolation block where I'd spend the next week, two weeks, month, six weeks, two months and I'd be there on my own and you're not allowed anything in there, they take the bed out during the day and you're on your own. That was all real psychological damage but I kind of had this inner strength that I believed in myself and I believed one day, even in these early days, Mm. that this wasn't going to be me for the rest of my life. I wasn't going to allow it to happen. I have no idea how you managed to keep that much hope. It's that anger. You talked about the anger. You'd be really anger. But if you can turn that anger, which is what I did, into a strength, you can make a difference. And that's what I did. But most importantly, I learned more about my case than anybody else. I got all the documentation. I read every line, every word, every sentence over and over again. And I made meticulous notes week after week, month after month, challenging people's testimony or the evidence that they used to convict me. Fuck. You see quite a lot in like TV shows and films of prison where people are protesting their innocence inside is are there a lot of people like that because i know it tends you tend to see prisoners not believe it they go everyone says that it seems like the cliche everyone's innocent in prison yeah and 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 it's exactly what you said do you accept it after a few years and those that go in protesting their innocence who are not innocent often do it could be three years four years and then they sort of say listen if i'm ever going to get out of it and i'm talking about people doing very long sentences Mm. life sentences 25 years not the six month type prisoners um, they often turn around and accept their guilt. They kind of bow, bow over and they accept that they did what they did. They tried their, their arm. It didn't work. And so now they're going to accept it, go through the, the hoops, if you like, seeing the psychiatrists and the anger management and doing whatever it is they need to do to address their offending behaviour. I didn't take part in any of that. So you can distinguish between those. No one believed me. Of course they didn't believe me when I was yeah. telling them I was innocent. Yeah. No, no, Are was, you talking about other inmates? Other prisoners believe, yeah. and guards. It was, hard, it was harder with the guards because I, I was not only fighting the regime, they were there to treat me like a convicted prisoner and I wouldn't accept that I was a guilty convicted prisoner. With the prisoners, you know, they didn't believe me. I mean, there were one or two probably did uh, early on and it wasn't until the publicity turned around and people were starting to question my convictions that more prisoners started to kind of come on side. Um, But yeah, at the beginning, everybody believed I was innocent, but I was very militaristic. You know, I'd march up and down the landings and wouldn't talk to people, wouldn't socialise with other prisoners, you know, because I was on a mission to prove my innocence. Who was, what what were the kind of people? Because not only were you in prison as an innocent man, you just said that you was in the worst wing or worst block that there are, surrounded by the 
the worst of the worst. What what what? what so who was the worst person you you saw? Did anyone really stick with you? Like, and, well, I, I over the years. I mean, initially when I was in a prison within a prison. Now I wasn't in that same prison forever. You yeah, know, I I moved along the system, but I didn't move along this. I I did all the Brixtons, Wormwood Scrubs, the Wandsworths, the Pentonvilles, the Parkers, the Maidstones, the Goss. You know, I moved around a lot. Why do they do that? Sorry, for, for two reasons. One, I was volatile and didn't buy into the system, so their way of dealing with me was moving me from prison to prison. I mean, I was volatile. I was 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, and I was fighting like, you know, my first fight, and I'll tell you about that in a minute, was with the biggest guy you could imagine, you, you, you know, but it was necessary, and, and I'll tell you about that if you want to know about it. Mm. But I met people like Reggie Cray, Charles Bronson, you know, they were probably our most notorious prisoners. You know, me and Reggie Cray became good friends, um, Charlie Bronson, I, I knew very well. In fact, I knew him before he became this notorious prisoner that he is today. Um, so I met lots of people. But in that prison within a prison, it was your Colombian cartel drug barons. It was the Freddie Foremans, you know, these notorious gangsters, the, the, the Richardsons, who were the South East London enemies of the Cray twins and stuff like that. And then some really dangerous individuals who had committed some horrendous crimes, including, you know, your top IRA prisoners who had been remanded or convicted of of terror activities it's, it's, your life's like a movie mate it's like a, it's like a, a nightmare and a movie rolled into one what was what was charlie bronson like i have to ask i met him in the segregation unit where he spent a lot of time so it was one of those occasions where um i kicked up and um what what, what would often happen is they take you to an isolation block. So you get bent up, your arms get pushed behind your back. It's like one of those typical scenarios. And I'd be taken down to the segregation area. And I remember being in one of these isolation cells. And in these isolation cells, there are big poles that run through the back of the cells, right? So these are your heaters. So you don't have radiators or anything like that. You just have these big poles and they generate heat. At each end of these poles, there is like a scraping of the wall. So prisoners would scrape round the pole so they could communicate with the guy next door. That was our way of communication. You know, it wasn't a bit of plastic cut with a bit of string. You put it against the wall. <laughs> but it was these scrapings in the wall. And I remember being in this isolation shell. I'd just been bent up and put in there by these screws and I could hear someone tapping on the, um, the, the sort of pole that goes across. And I've got down on the floor to, who's that, who's that? And it's, oh, it's Peter. Who's Peter? Yeah, it's Peter. I'm, I'm down in isolation. What are you down here for, mate? And that was Charlie Bronson. His name was Peter originally. But oh, right. he, he was Peter at the time. He was using his real name. Yeah. Um, and we just struck up a conversation. We never, we, because you're in isolation, you never meet face to face. But for the next month, me and him had lots of giggles and laughs through that fucking pole. You know, that, that was it. Wow. I then met him as the years went on. And he now started to develop this, this persona where he was the hardest prisoner in the prison system. You know, he grew this big beard, his hair had fallen out and he'd gone bald and he'd walk around like a big muscle head. Um, but, you know, it, it, he, he's one of those individuals, in my opinion, who was unfortunate. He wanted to be tough. He wanted to live a life in prison where he was you know, respected, um, and it just ended up being, he ended up being the longest serving prisoner in our, in our country. And, 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 and his original crime was for car theft or robbery. Yeah, I think he robbed serious. a post office or something. Something like that. How, how, what is it like walking around day to day with men like that around? Is, is it, I guess this is a, probably a stupid question, like what I always mug you off for, Stevie, when you ask, but... but <laughs> is it boring? <laughs> but is it... Um, do you feel unsafe in there? Do you? Because walking around with you, you might have got on with Peter Charlie Bronson. Like it, he might, it, he might have sat down and told you a story one day. But I, in my mind, I think there's no nothing stopping him just 
lashing out the next day. And that happens all the time. Does it? But I become one of them. You, 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 you know, I already had a reputation that I was the leader of this M25 gang who'd been convicted of this murder, this notorious gang. So mm. I already had a reputation before I even entered the prison. That kind of preceded me because of the media's interest. So I already have this aura around me where people are slightly hesitant of approaching me or coming to me. And you have to embrace that slightly to protect yourself. So I had to live up to this, not the reputation that I was a murderer, no. but I tried to live up to the reputation that, you know, I would stand up for myself. Yeah. And that's exactly what I did. I guess that's the only kind of, only minuscule positive in you being branded as this. It, it, it helped me survive. Yeah, yeah I bet. For, for, for sure. You know, especially mm. among the prisoners that were not in for such serious offences. You know, they might be, you know million pound cocaine smugglers or or whatever you know so they were all about the money and not the violence mm. um but 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 it, it it you know it doesn't stop you being hesitant every day you you know antennas at the back of your head every time you come out of your cell you don't know whether you're going to be the victim of the next attack and it can be for something as simple as looking at somebody differently if you come out of your cell in the real world of prison and you don't acknowledge someone just a slight nod of the head to sort of say how are you doing this morning without a word, or you look them in the eye and, and acknowledge them, they get paranoid. And that's what prison is about. People get extremely paranoid. So if I haven't nodded to someone, they think then that I'm dissing them or something. And that can create such violence, and it happens all the time in prison. I don't think there was a day in prison, and this is not me hesitating or, or exaggerating, I don't think there was a day in prison where some violent act took place. Wow. That's what it's really like. And I wasn't in... I, I need to emphasise this. I wasn't in your local prisons where it's a conveyor belt of prisoners coming in and out for spice or cocaine or, or whatever, petty crimes. I was in the deepest, darkest prisons where people were serving very, very long sentences. And these are sort of the prisons out far where you only go to these prisons when you're doing 25 years plus. Yeah. You know, you alluded to your, your, your first fight. Let's hear about that. I, w- I was in a prison and um, it was a very cocooned prison. Everybody in there was a lifer or serving long sentences and there was this guy in there who was a bit of a bully and I, I didn't take to bullies very kindly especially if it was directed at me if it directed at other people where well, they have to fight their own battles you can't and this particular guy was doing some really wicked things to people one of the things he did to me is he put a dead pigeon in my cell then he put another pigeon with a noose around its neck and hung it from my cell he was trying to intimidate me and he was a big guy big guy called daryl um and he was from the east end of London. When I went into my cell on one occasion, he sort of came to the door of the cell, and the cells were really small in this prison in Leicestershire, Gartry, really small prison. And we'd get moved every two weeks because I was an ACAT prisoner. You never stayed in the same cell for more than two weeks. So every two weeks, you'd be taken out of your cell. I could be taken out from cell one and moved into cell two every two weeks. So from two, back to one, one, back to two. So you never sort of settled. Mm. And on this occasion, I was in the cell And I was putting my stuff down, the little bits that I had. And he came into the doorway, just blocked out the whole of the doorway and started like sort of mouthing off to me and saying to me, you know, you think you're this, you'll think you're that. And it was simply because I was militaristic. I didn't socialise with very many people. I was on a mission to prove my innocence. That's all that mattered to me all the time. And he stood in the doorway and he started giving it. And I thought, if he comes in this cell, he'll crush me like a fly. He was that big, you know, and he could quite easily. I was thick and I was young and all I did was exercise. So I offered him out, as you do. You mm. know, like, you want to have a fight? We'll, we'll have a fight, but not here. Let's do it down in the association. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing. And there were a few people around, so he couldn't not say 
Yes. And I saw the fear in his eyes. And that was my moment when I offered him out, as scared as I was, when I offered him out, I saw the fear in his eyes and that gave me the upper edge. That's how I saw it. And it stood me in good stead in my career when I looked these murderers in the eyes today. And I saw the fear and then he marched off. Come on, come on. So he marched off down the corridor. I marched off behind him and then we had this entourage of other prisoners making sure the guards didn't know what was going on. We go down the stairs, we go into the association room and it's sort of the biggest room in the prison block. And we had a real tear up, you, you know, biting, punching, Fucking poking hell. in the eyes. And, and I, I was kind of jumping up to punch him. Yeah. <laughs> Super <laughs> Mario. <laughs> it really was like that. I was kind of jumping up, hitting him, landing back on the floor, and he was kind of coming at me. But we had a real proper kind of tear up. There was no weapons involved. I damaged him and he damaged me. Um, but it earned me the respect. I suppose the most frightening thing, once the fight is going, your sort of adrenaline's pumping and we were having this real bad... I, I got beaten quite bad, he got beaten quite bad, and I'd say the fight was fair. I was faster, quicker, he was more powerful and painful. <laughs> That's what he thought. My punch has just bounced off him. He's one's kind of rocked me kind of thing. Yeah. And I remember the fight. And then after the fight, to wash off the blood, I remember going back up to, to the cell block area where they have showers outside the cells. And it had one of those kind of swing doors, you know, imagine the Westerns where you swing into this. So the, the shower doors had these swing doors. And I knew then that if I went into that shower and he wasn't happy with the result of the fight because I'd done good in terms of my retaliation, he could come into that shower and end my life. He could come in, he could stab me, cut my throat, do what he would. But I was beyond caring. You, you know, I really was beyond caring. I'm in the shower and I'm showering. And he came to the door, my heart leapt, but actually... He reached over the door and he shook my hand and he said, you're the first person to stand up to me and I respect that and all that. And that was out of fear. It was out of fear. That's the only reason he did it, because he knew I would stand up to him, but now other people might stand up to him. And that preceded every prison I went to from that moment on. People knew Raf would have a go. He wouldn't let you bully him and he wouldn't stand up for himself. We've, we've seen that in, in some of the Netflix um, yeah. series as well, which we'll get to in the second half. But fuck it. How, I guess you can't be certain that he's not just going to pull a shank out and, 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 and stab you then and there. Surely. In the same prison, uh, uh, you, you know, the first bit of violence. I mean, I'd seen lots of violence, but I suppose one of the most harrowing things I saw in that same prison, probably two days before, was this young black guy. He was a rapist. No one knew he was a rapist at the time, so he was allowed to be in the normal population. And I remember being the person I was refusing to work in the prison or do anything that they want you to do. I, um, I'm sitting in the television room on my own. They allowed me out of my cell, and this black guy was sitting behind me. All of a sudden, I heard a bit of commotion behind me um, and some guys were dragging him, dragging him out of his cell and dragging him. So I'm thinking, you know, I don't get involved, but what I want to do is see what's happening as you do. And so I followed him and the guys who were dragging him. They dragged him out into the sort of smaller space. They got this boiling water kettle. They poured it over his face and then, you know, that sugar water. And he was quite a dark black kid, but his face turned as pink as a pig's body. You know, it was it was one of the most harrowing things I'd seen Sort of, and I stood there and watched it, um, did nothing about it because I couldn't and I wouldn't, and that was because he was a rapist and they discovered that he'd committed rape 
and it made me realise how dangerous prison could be if somebody wanted to turn against you. And that's what happened. Fucking hell. I've heard of the sugar water thing again, yeah. but can you just clarify why they do that? It, it, it makes it, it damages the skin more. It peels the skin off and it, it, it burns much more than just the hot water and it's unrepairable. Oh my God. It's not the first time and the only time I've seen that happen. I've seen it happen more than once. What, do, it, your fight with that guy, mm. Darren or Dunk? Daryl. Daryl. Was, was that the worst injury you got in prison? No, actually, I, the, the worst injury, I mean, I had other fights. Some I won, some I lost. I'd say I'd lost one, 110, you know. So right. I, 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 I did pretty well. I was super fit when I was in prison. I really was. You know, yeah. it's the only thing I did. I refused to work. So the only job they would allow me to do was to work in the gymnasium. And that gave me the opportunity to keep super fit. Oh, nice. But it was more than that. It was more about the more I could keep my body physically fit, the more I could keep my mind fit. Because yeah. I was fighting my demons every day of being wrongfully imprisoned. Mm. No, the worst, the worst, the worst was probably from the prison guards. I was in Wormwood Scrubs. I was sent there on a lie down. A lie down is when you're too much trouble in one prison, you're in your cell at the dead of night and the screws come in and they put a hood over your head and they take you out and they put you in a van and they drive you to another prison. They call it a lie down, you know, in prison terms, which is where you're taken from one prison to another. And I ended up in Wormwood Scrubs and I ended up in the segregation of Wormwood Scrubs. And Wormwood Scrubs at the time had the most notorious reputation of having this kind of national front racist prison officers down in the segregation unit. And I was taken into the segregation unit and I knew what was coming because you don't go down there and survive without a beating. But the beating I got from the prison officers was so bad. I was already stripped naked because they put me in a padded cell. I was already stripped naked. No one could hear what was going on. And they came in and they kicked the fuck out of me. They beat me black and blue. And I was already naked. Couldn't fight that because they did what they did to me. Fortunately for me, fortunately for me. And what happens is the doctor and the prison governor are supposed to check on prisoners that are in isolation every day. And they came into my cell the following morning. I'm, I'm sort of swimming in my own blood and pain. And, and I remember the doctor coming in and they have this sheet of paper. And you think of this sheet of paper. It's got a skeleton diagram on it. And they're supposed to mark any injuries from any prisoners. And this doctor would often come in and he did it on many other prisoners. This was discovered later. But he'd hold the piece of paper and he'd tick and say, no injuries. But me being the person I was, I grabbed the piece of paper and his pen and there were no sort of screws around him. And I was able to sort of scribble on the piece of paper. Now, because they're sequenced in numbers, he couldn't just get rid of that piece of paper. Lo and behold, about four years later, I remember getting a letter from a solicitor's firm who were taking on the Wormwood Scrubs, Gestapo is what they called them. And so they had this class action and they asked me the simple question. You know, there was a piece of paper in this document that just showed some scribble, but your name was attached to this document. And then I was able to explain to them the brutality that I'd suffered and they took a case against it. And it was one of the first cases against a prison system. And the whole system in segregation changed as a result. Wow. Even the doctors were on it. All of them. Oh, All my them. God. Governors were turned blind. They'd come in and they'd see me. And it wasn't that occasion. They'd see me beaten. But I would be blamed for it. It's because you didn't conform. You were not accepting the regime. And you're going to keep suffering this until you do. Do you think even like the, the, the white blokes in there were getting it? Or yeah, was it? no, it was, it, it was indiscriminate. I mean, black guys more than anybody. Yeah. I think it's because they couldn't understand the culture of black people, which is an issue today, isn't mm. it? I think they misinterpret people. But no, it was, it was anybody, you know, the Charles Bronsons of the world, they'd get that beating just as much as I did. Fucking it, hell. It was just, you go to Worma Scrubs block during that period, you suffered. Wow. Did you ever think of escaping? 
I didn't actually. There was one opportunity I had to escape. Was there? It was such a bizarre situation because. <laughs> well, and you didn't take it? I didn't take it because I was innocent. I yeah. wanted to walk. I didn't want to run. For sure. But you, I, you I would have felt at that point, he, he, you, you, you'd tried all the way through and nothing seemed to be working. So then maybe. Well, I think that the, the reality was, as I've said many times, the prisons that I was in were very dark and they were maximum security prisons. So mm. there was no escape. No one right. escapes from there. I mean, there were a couple of big escapes that took place during these years, but it was nothing I could ever achieve kind of thing. You know, tell Katie on somebody's back. Didn't happen. But on one occasion during a, an appeal process where I was, you know, sort of in the courts trying to get my appeal heard, um, this was late in my sentence. You know, I've calmed down now. I'm, in, in, you know, not conforming to the regime, but I'm campaigning as opposed to fighting. Mm. Very different. You know, I was using my head and my knowledge and my insight and the education I gathered rather than trying to fight my way out of prison. Mm. And I was going to an appeal hearing. And by now, prison officers had been replaced by G4S or one of these other Serco type escort firms, you know, these private companies. Um, and for me, it was very rare that I'd get taken out of a prison and go on a long journey in, in one of these kind of sweat boxes, these, these little boxes that they cubicles inside the vans and you get put in there and you sit like a little sardine for the journey. And I remember getting in this G, GS4 or whatever it was, G4 van. We'd gone to the appeal court and these were more civilians than prison guards. So they were a little bit more naive. And on the way back from the court going to the prison, they said they were hungry and wanted to stop to get something to eat. Bearing in mind, I've been in prison probably eight years now. Yeah. And they said they were going to stop at a McDonald's. Right. And I'm like, McDonald's? <laughs> Fucking McDonald's? All I've eaten is sort of porridge for the last eight years. So they're going to stop at McDonald's and ask me if I wanted some. And I'm kind of looking around thinking, are they talking to me? But they were. And we stopped at a McDonald's drive and they asked me what I wanted. I told them what I wanted, what I always ate when I was outside. What was your order? Quarter pounder of cheese with chips and a strawberry milkshake. Good man. Love that. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was my thing on the outside. They stopped the van, but it got bizarre because what they did then is they opened the cubicle door. And the cubicle door, it was a no-no. You don't open a cubicle door on a Category A prisoner or a high-risk mm. prisoner. But they opened the cubicle door, handed me my food, and didn't shut the door. They said you could eat it. So I stepped out of the cubicle door, waiting for the moment that someone would accuse me. Because remember, I was very paranoid, thinking that this was a, a setup. They, yeah. want, they wanted me to run. Mm. And I sat on the step of the, the van, the back door of the van, which was now open, eating this McDonald's. And the guards... You know, if I would have run, I could have run backwards and laughed at them if they chased me. You know, I was that fit running marathons around a fucking prison exercise yard. That's how fit I was. Um, but I sat on the steps and I'm thinking, should I run or, 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 or is this a setup? Is this what they want so they can fuck up my chances of appealing? They can then say dangerous prisoner escapes. And it just sets me back eight years because I'd made progress by now. Documentaries were being made. Journalists were writing stories about and questioning my convictions. So that was the only opportunity, and I didn't take it. I ate the quarter pounder with cheese, drank the strawberry milkshake. They put me back in the cubicle and back to prison I went. Wow. But I was very tempted, very tempted, man. That is one of the, the maddest crazy. things I've ever heard. I, the, the temptation there. And it was my first <laughs> sniff of freedom. You know, yeah. That was the first time that I was able to inhale air from the outside beyond looking up. Because remember, when you're in prison, you can't see further than 100 or 200 yards. You can only see the blue sky because there are these big solid walls. I was never in a prison with just a fence. All the prisons I was in had fences and walls. So my vision was restricted to the wall. You know, for all those years, I couldn't see beyond the wall. I could see up and see the blue sky. I was never in a, a prison where there were buildings around me so I could look out for my cell and see people living their life. No, it was not like that where I was. So being on that 
step on that van, sucking in fresh air, seeing normal people walk around and not just prisoners, was really bizarre and, and very tempting. You're just sat there in 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 handcuffs, just. I didn't have handcuffs on. You didn't. I didn't have handcuffs Whoa. on. I think I don't know if there's many men on the on the planet that wouldn't have have taken that, but rightfully so, because obviously you went on to prove your innocence. I did. How how long how so how long after the Big Mac was you did you did you get that that in a quarter pounder? Sorry, yeah, Come quarter on. pounder. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it took another four years actually. Right, I mean, it, it was the downward thing. You know, the campaigning had started. The media was starting to raise questions about my convictions. You know, the BBC Rough Justice, which was a big kind of program that investigated alleged miscarriages of the time, were making documentaries about my case. I remember watching it on a small TV that had been smuggled in to the prison cell that I was in. I was watching it, but by now they'd introduced toilets, and I was in a prison where they had the toilets. So I was hiding on the toilet toilet seat looking at this little screen watching this program about me being a wrongfully convicted prisoner looking up at the door all the time to see if the screw was looking through the spiral but it took yeah four years after that wow what what did it feel like when you was in that little cubicle watching it did was that a glimmer of hope amongst the darkness it's the biggest hope you know once the bbc had done what they'd done which is question the safety of my convictions i knew millions of people had been told i knew for them to even embark on investigating my case when there were lots of other cases going on. I mean, at the time that I was in prison protesting my innocence, there were big cases being released, the Birmingham Six, the Guildford Four. You might not be familiar with these cases, but there were some big miscarriages of justice cases coming to light and these convictions were being quashed and there were big questions about the criminal justice system at the time mm. and I was kind of riding on that and it was through these people, people like Winston Silcott who was in there for the Tottenham riot murder of a police officer it was those kind of guys that were saying to me you can't keep fighting like this, look at you, you're being broken by the system, you need to do it a different way, you know, you need to do it with a pen and paper rather than your fist Right. Um, so, so it was a big change but it took four years and and you, you at this point you'd done twelve is that right 12, twelve years and what was the what was the new evidence or the lack of initial evidence that that ended up setting you free well initially it was um, the European Court of Human Rights had just been incorporated into British law and we were able to submit almost the same evidence two white men one black man not three black men fingerprint evidence fabricated police paying reward money to witnesses to change their stories because we know that's what happened the daily mail at the time paid a huge amount of money out we didn't know who got that money but it was in the bbc documentary with this guy who was secretly recorded admitting that he conspired with the police and received the reward money so we now had new evidence evidence that was never given to us it was known by the police and the prosecution but they withheld that information. We were now aware of that because of the BBC documentary and other journalists who had been asking questions. So we compiled a document. The British courts were never going to accept it, but we were able to take that information, go to the European court, and they ruled unanimously, 21 judges from across Europe, they ruled unanimously that this evidence that should have been provided to the defence at the time of their trial meant we didn't get a fair trial. And on that basis, unanimously, they couldn't refer my case back to the Court of Appeal, but they could insist that the British criminal justice system looked at my case again, and that's exactly what they did. I know it was a, a long process that obviously you fought yeah. for tooth and nail, but when you get told that you're, you're free, does that almost feel like, despite all the hard work, does that almost feel quite instant? Like, is it literally a case of as soon as they decide it's that, the doors open and you push back out into the world. You'd think so, wouldn't you? Yeah. It, 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 it is, but it isn't. Because I remember when the judges quashed our conviction, there was this kind of silence in the court. Did they just say that your convictions are quashed and you're free? Are they going to say something else? They didn't. The judges started to shuffle up their papers and move. The 
public gallery, my family, my lawyers were all jumping for joy. I was still terrified. I, I didn't believe it was actually happening. And I didn't just sort of walk out the front of the court there and then. It wasn't like they said, all right, off you go, like you see on television. That doesn't happen. You know, I didn't have hugs with my family and, and the lawyers. No, what they did... <laughs> I, they, they took me back down into the... I knew I was free now. My conviction was quashed. Yeah. You know, I had nothing pending, so I, I should be... So I was taken down. And then there's this whole process that takes place down in the, the sort of belly of the Court of Appeal where they give me a, a £54 discharge grant. And then they have to phone the prison. <sighs> they phone the prison to check that I've got no outstanding um, warrants or anything else that they need to keep me on. So it took about two hours. I was waiting in the <sighs> call, in the cell. They still locked me out, although they left the cell doors open so my lawyers could come down and we could shake hands and do that kind of stuff. But it took about two hours before they actually took me to the back door and opened the back door and that's when I was free. Do they do they treat you like a, like a, like a normal civilian at that point or do they still treat you like a, a bit of a convict? I, 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 I think I was fortunate in that the last 12 months leading up to my eventual release, everybody was on side, prisoners and prison guards. You know, they believed in my innocence. There was enough out there that was, you know, questioning the safety of my convictions and the decision about my appeal was pending. So people knew the publicity was already saying they're going to be free. They can't keep us in anymore. Right. So, so the dynamics had changed slightly within the prison system. But mm. yeah, I mean, they still did that process. They gave me 54 quid. That was my discharge. 54 <laughs> quid? What, what, what a random amount? How do they it's, work that out? It, it's your bus fare home. Although I live in London, it's, yeah. I don't know how they work that out. <laughs> we spoke about your first day in prison. What was your first day back in the real world like? I fucked anything I possibly could. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, wish it, I, I wish it was as simple as that. No, it wasn't. I, let, let me just walk you through what happened. So they, when I say they open up the back door, it's the only door to the Court of Appeal. It's the one where people are innocent or win their appeals walk out. So they opened that door and then my family were there. And, 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 and that's the first time I cried in 12 years. So I, I'm oh, embraced wow. by my family who'd campaigned in all those years. So I was able to let go. And that was the moment I let go, the anger the bitterness and everything that I carried that got me through those 12 years. And then I was kind of escorted out of the back door to the front steps of the Court of Appeal where I then made this statement um, uh, uh, about, you know, spending all those years in prison as a young man and how they'd ruined my life. And then um, my family and my sisters put me in the back of a black taxi, I think it was, and for the first time I was handed a mobile phone. So I not up until that point ever touched a mobile phone, you know, I, I, given it, didn't know what to do with it. Sounds silly, but it's true. They laughed at me. And then I went off and fucked anything I could. <laughs> <laughs> what was the first meal you had? Was it another quarter pounder? I can't remember, actually. I, I really can't remember. I don't think I ate for the first two days. I was too busy banging away. <laughs> <laughs> You, you've got to remember, you know, I went in as as 20, so yeah. I came out 20. Yeah. Although I'd aged 12 years, I was still a 20-year-old, and mm. I wanted to catch up on what I thought I'd missed out on. I still am trying to catch up on what I, I missed out on. I can't remember what the first meal was. I can't remember any of that kind of stuff. All I know, it was good. I've got one picture of me holding a glass of champagne with one of my co-defendants as we were celebrating, and that was probably the only thing I can remember. Wow, what a story. And then you completely flipped your life on, on, on its head by making a fucking success of yourself and, and becoming a journalist, like all the things we mentioned at the start, documentarian. And um, we're going to get to that in the, in the second half of the show. But for now, I feel like 
This is becoming like that that prison that you went to in Paraguay, like the sweat stripping off us. So we'll 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 go for a break there. We'll go for a wee, get some water, and we'll come back for the second half of the show when we speak to Raphael Rowe about his uh, his Netflix show. So come back then. Imagine a place of your own in your name, a place where all your stuff is, where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Football's back and we are here to laugh about it. Hellenius in the League Cup, he was trying to like defend with his hands and he yanked his yeah. shorts down. Straight off. See you later. Yeah. But Hellenius got the shot away, which I thought was very professional. Yes. <laughs> Whether it's players losing their pants or managers losing their shit. And I thought about that when <laughs> when you could just hear Moy shouting at Pablo Fornell. And then he just loses all, yeah. all sense of himself at the end when, he, when Fornell blazed it over the football rambler here every day with new episodes covering the lighter side of football I walked past a trophy shop at the weekend and said we're only allowing one person in at a time nobody wants any fucking trophies mate don't worry but no one, there's nothing happening also no it's a null and void your five-a-side league is null and void piss off Listen now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. He went through, and all you hear is, Shoot, Pablo! Yeah. Shoot! Yeah. Finish! Finish! Oh, finish. <laughs> Pablo! This was a Stakhanov production. Hello, guys, and welcome back to Jack Mates. Not so happy hour. I mean, I'm happy to be in your company, Raphael, but the story's... Uh, not the happiest. Happy ending. That's a good thing. You That's know, it. You know, it's not in a sort of Philippine sort of massage parlor. But that- <laughs> I was going to say, don't, don't start calling this Jack Mate's happy ending. <laughs> That's what he did on his first day out. <laughs> I, I exaggerate. You know, you know, I was a seasoned wanker. You know. <laughs> uh, we, we were gonna we were gonna move jump straight into um, inside the world's toughest prisons, but before that. Um, I remembered I wanted to ask you a bit about the the craze. You said that you mentioned you 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 knew them in prison, or you knew what was it, Reggie? You I knew? knew Reggie. Yeah, I met Ronnie when he came to visit Reggie in Maidstone Prison, where where I was with with Reggie. I was sort of banged on this side of the landing. Reggie was where you are, opposite me. So we were banged up opposite each other for about three and a half years. So I met Ronnie when he came to visit Reggie after I think it was their mother died or someone died in their family. So they were brought together for one of the very first times. Right. So how how long how close were you to to Reggie? Well, I, you, you say close. I mean, um, 
he'd come into my cell and have conversations. There were some conversations I wouldn't repeat here, but I'm going to write it in my book because I want to sell my book. <laughs> Get that promo but, in. But I, I knew him well. You know, he was an old Divering man, to be honest with you. You know, he'd been in prison for 35 years and, mm. and I'd sometimes walk around the yard with him. Um, I organised a charity football match with him and I remember Reggie... Um, for example, in prison at the time, one of the issued um, bits of garments that we wore were these blue and white striped shirts, you know. So today I think they give prisoners sort of grey tracksuits. But back in my day, you'd be issued with a blue and white famous shirt with HMP stamped on it. So I had a, a cousin who played for Brentford football team at the time and he brought in his team um, and the manager because they wanted to see Reggie Crane not necessarily play fucking football with me. But mm. it was a, it was a charity event. And um, I had Reggie sign all all the shirts. Um, so I knew him well enough. Um, and, you know, he was a man who, you know, he could pick out innocent and not innocent prisoners. Not that he cared about that. Oh, wow. But I was, I was, um, I was impressed by the fact that in one of his last books before he died, he did write in his book that when he met me, um, I was probably the only prisoner that he'd ever met who he truly believed was innocent. So um, not in them words, but, you know, it's an accolade when you've got a prisoner of that statue sort of declaring that, you know, he's seen them all, heard them all, but he believed me. And he even took the trouble to write it in his book. And I think that was just after I was released. And then obviously when he died, I went to his funeral because I'd mingled a mix with all those gangsters. You know, mm. I was never on their side. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But, you know, I come out of my cell sitting on the landing, having a cup of tea and they'd all be around me. And I was welcomed in the black click, the white click, the gangster click, because I was not one of them. And I didn't conform to who they were or what they were. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I, I, I got to know him very well. You know, he's a man... Um, you know, came into my cell on one occasion. I'm not going to give you too much detail, but he came into my cell on one occasion, cried his eyes out. Really? Mm, sat down there, cried his eyes out. So, you know, so he, he felt we knew each other enough that he could come and confine in me. You know, this is a, a, a gangster that he has this mythical reputation about him. Mm. I, I had a lot of time for him, a lot of respect for him, uh, uh, not because he was Reggie Craig, the gangster, but because he was a man who survived those many years in prison. And, and you know, I'd look at people like that and say, I'm not going to fucking be here for that long. Because he was a divering old man. Yeah. And when I say divering old man, I mean, he was someone who had been confined in a cell for 35 years or more. And so he shuffled around the prison. Mm. You know, he was still as sharp as a razor in the sense that, you know, he'd always wear clean clothes, this gold chain around his neck. Um, he was into sort of, you know, these kind of wishing well web things that you had hanging. So he'd have them all hanging from his cell as if like dream catchers, I think they well, call them. You can get them in prison. You get lots of things in prison. When, when you're in the deep, dark bellies of the prison, you can get a lot of things. I, I mean, it progressed over the years. I mean, as I say, when I first went, it was a piss pot. Mm. It was a cardboard table and chair. Yeah. But over the years, you can accumulate things and prisons progressed in that they introduced sanitation so you could piss and shit in a toilet in your cell as opposed to going down the landing and queuing up and waiting for every other fucker to fill it up. So... So, yeah, things did progress. And Reggie had one of those cells where he had everything. in his cell. And I'm not talking about luxuries. I mean, you're talking about a small nine by six full of things that he'd get sent in from people. You know, I'd go out on visits, for example, the visiting hall. So we all go into the same visiting hall. And then you'd have all wonders of celebrities coming up to visit him. You, you, really? You, yeah, who would come to visit him simply because they wanted to be touched by Reggie Cray. Wow. Um, sometimes it was the wannabe criminals, you, yeah. you, you, you know, um, and, and sometimes it was people who were writing books or, or something. But Reggie was... He was he was a sharp man who I, I truly believe should have been released to, to live the rest of his life outside because he wasn't a threat. He didn't have... 
you know, he didn't have the pulling power of, of the gangster. I mean, he was locked up in the 60s. Yeah. You, you know, he died in prison or he was released just before he died. I think he died in Norwich, actually, from where... He might from, have done. Yeah, if, if I've got the right one, because obviously I get the, the two mixed quite quite a lot. Is it, was it, did, I guess, because the celebrity... I was going to ask you whether or not he was aware of his, like, f- how famous he was, or yeah. infamous he was. Yeah, he played up to it. Did he? Yeah, of course he did. I mean, he, he, was, he wasn't somebody who kind of stood on the landings and puffed his chest out. He's too old for that. But, mm. but, but he recognised, he, he always looked to, I thought, exploit the situation because, you know, you could earn no money in prison. You can't earn money in prison. So if someone wanted to write a book about it, about him, he'd welcome that person. Somebody was offering an opportunity to sell his T-shirts. He'd welcome those people. When people made a lot of money out of, of him, he very got he got very little of that, I I, I think. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think initially, and I didn't know him here uh, uh, as a young man when he was first in the prison, but in the dying days when I did know him, mm. um, and I met him not just in one prison, but, you know, I, I we, we kind of crossed paths in other prisons as, as well. Um, and there are stories about him that I can't share with you now, but I'm going to share in my book. But but he, but he's, he, he, you know, um, he, he earned a lot of respect in prison, but he also lost a lot of respect in prison because of what he become uh, and the way he conducted himself on occasion. Well, negatively? It depends how you look at it. Yeah. It, you, you know, it depends on what your perspective is about people and who they are and, and what, what you believe. I suppose people like Reggie Cray, he had a reputation of being this notorious gangster from this twin and there were films made about him, legends and all this kind of thing. Um, but the reality, from what I saw with my own eyes and what I heard with my own ears, um, lots of other prisoners were exposed to that too. Um, and some didn't take to it kindly, you know, what they right. saw and what they witnessed. Was he a bit of a, a bit of a strange character? Because I, I've watched a few like movies that depict him and stuff, and obviously they dramatise that to, to sell tickets. But he seemed a bit a bit odd. Was he a bit odd, or was he a straightforward London gangster? You you see what you get. It depends what you define as a straightforward London gangster. You know, he, he he's not like all the other gangsters in the sense that they'd done some time, went out, might have done something else, and ended up back in prison, like Foreman or or some of these other. Uh, sort of notorious gangsters with reputations. He's a man who spent many, many years in prison. So, of course, he's going to be a bit strange and behave in a particular way. You know, you couldn't have a a straight conversation like I am with you right now with Reggie for, for too long because his mind would wander and he'd diver off over there and do something. Not because he was mentally insane yeah. or because he couldn't hold the conversation, but he lost interest quite quickly. And that's the repercussions of a prison cell. I mean, it happened to me. It still happens to me. You know, so you wander off in a different direction. Um, mm. I've been allowed, you know, I've got my freedom back and I've sort of taken in new memories and thoughts. But he's, you know were confined to a prison cell and prison conversations for 35 years. I mean, what do you talk about after two years? You know, you've done all the talking. You can talk about your memories on the outside. Now you're just talking about what goes on in prison. And the fact is, we're all seeing the same thing. So what the fuck do you want to talk about? <laughs> That's true, actually. I've never thought yeah. about that. Yeah, well, you know when we did an episode a few weeks back where we, we basically did an episode where it was like, what would we do if we were stranded on a desert island? If you could take one person with you, blah, blah, blah. I said, didn't I? I think it would take three years of living with somebody who's super interesting before they get fucking boring. And because that's based on nothing. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd say it's shorter. Really, I, I, I'd say it's you know based on my experience of being in prison and finding people interesting initially. Once I told you their story six times, ten yeah. times, fifteen You're times, like Reggie, but, for fuck's sake, mate. That's enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's so true. Three years, man. Yeah. <laughs> you, you're good. Have you have you seen um, the the film Legend yes. by Tom, Tom Hardy? Yeah. How accurate is that portrayal? I, 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 on, on the outside, I don't know because I didn't know him. I wasn't even born when he ended up in, in prison. I, I can only reflect on 
on on him as a man that I met in prison. I'm not going to talk about he's I, I, what I see, what I hear, I believe that's me. Mm. And, you know, is authentic, and, and and that's what I base my relationship on with someone like Reggie Cray, based on our relationship. And when I say our relationship, you know, our acquaintance in prison and mm. the time that I knew him, he wasn't a mate of mine that we'd sit down and smoke a joint together or anything like that. He had influence in prison, but it wasn't a fearful influence. It wasn't like, Oh really? No, it wasn't a fearful influence. People didn't fear him. He didn't have an army of prisoners around him prepared to do his dirty work. That gone long time ago. I suspect that might've been something in the early seventies when he was first in prison and was still a bit of a boxer. I mean, he still fancied himself as a boxer, even in his seventies, he would go out onto the exercise yard and he stand there with his shirt off you know he's got this old man's body but still <laughs> still looking oh, someone said that about me the other day actually when they watched this netflix series they said nice body but it's an old man's body now oh <laughs> sure <laughs> but he'd go out on the exercise yard in his little kind of skimpy shorts if you like no top on and he'd bounce around sort of sparring in, in thin air sometimes you know, we'd all do it. We'd all have some pads and, and stuff and we'd go into a room like this that gets really hot in the laundry room mm. and we'd spar, you know, yeah. as a way of working out, getting a sweat up. And he'd often take part in that. And he still had a grip like a lion, you know. Did he? Punch like a sledgehammer, you know, <laughs> even when he was ageing, you, you know. Yeah. And he just had that, he had that aura around him where people respected him, at least initially, you know. And then as, as, as people... New people would come into the prison, you know, they'd be in awe and they'd watch him and they'd, that's Reggie Cray. But they'd say that about other prisoners who were notorious at the time, whose names, you know, some of them were notorious for really bad reasons. Right. Um, um, people would say that. But after a while, when you've seen it five, ten times, you don't even give it a second glance. And he was just one of those. It must be weird because he must have been high up in the kind of prison hierarchy sort of thing to start with when you go in and then over the years you get the, the new, fitter, younger men come in, you see that sort of that foothold on it crumble away. You, you do, and it's really about respecting. I mean, they still respect him because of the reputation that he's had. And this hierarchy that you talk about in the prisons that I was in existed to a certain extent, but it was really about money. It was about, if you're a gangster on the outside and, you know, loosely use the term gangster. But if you're somebody who was making good money on the outside, you know, importing, trafficking, drugs, mm. then you've got money. So when you're in prison, that buys you a lot. You know, right. it, it buys you a lot of influence, you know, not not in terms of protection power or anything like that, but it just means that you've got a little bit more money in your canteen, yeah. which means you can buy more tobacco, which you can then use as contraband to trade. And that just brings you power. It means you get more... I don't know, niece biscuits or fucking custard creams or, or something. But it is as trivial as that, you yeah. know, because you don't have the luxuries. I mean, I'll tell you something. When I was in with Reggie and a couple of other gangsters who were banged up next door to him, it was the first time I saw a quantity of drugs that I'd never seen before in my life. And this was in prison, a maximum prison. And I remember the, the guy was banged up two doors. me, So I was in, say, I was in free. Reggie was opposite me. And then you had a gangster on the right of him, a, 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 a sort of, wife killer i suppose next to me and then some other kind of prisoner mm -hmm. and i remember the other prisoner Stephen was his name i remember him coming into my cell on one occasion with a, a sainsbury's carrier bag full of cannabis it was just so much i'd never seen a big lump it was like bulky out now prisoner didn't smuggle that in you know that's the influence that people who have money can have in prison. So they pay a guard, a guard brings it in and then it gets chopped up by the smaller prisoners and then it's distributed around the prison for a quarter of tobacco or an extra packet of wow. biscuits. And when he came into my cell and he was terrified because he, I remember him coming in with this Sainsbury bag full of cannabis and saying he didn't know what to do with it. And so I sort of said, you need to chop it up into small pieces, you know, like 
two pound deals, five pound deals, and then just plant it around the prison. Convince as many people as you can who you will pay maybe a little half an ounce or something to mm. look after it. Um, <laughs> mm. Wow. Did but did Reg, going back to Reggie quickly? Did he did he draw things? Did he? I've I've heard that he like used to draw a lot of things. Yeah, I've I've got a few of those things. I mean, he, he what what he would often do. Um, it, it, it's it, this was his kind of famous thing, if yeah. you, if you like. So there would often be a picture of him and his brother posing as boxers. You know, in their younger days, and I've got a couple of these myself where he, he he'd, he'd come and he'd give you these old black and white printed, you know, off of a printer photograph with his signature on this. So you say, to my dear friend Raphael from Reggie Cray, in his, in his scruffled writing. Now, if you don't and are not used to his writing, you probably couldn't read it because, again, Divering and the same with his writing. Mm. Um, but, yeah, he did used to, to draw, but that was more Charlie Bronson. Charlie Bronson, I remember when he sent me a copy of his book and he did some very dark drawings. You, you, you know, he's famous for his very dark, bloody kind of drawings bit like Dali type things you know weird kind of things mm. um that reminds me actually i lent the book to a friend and he's never given me it back. <laughs> <laughs> okay i think we'll move on to um to your your latest venture you've been doing it for a few years now but i think series is series four, series the, four yeah. the latest one has ju- just dropped um inside the world's toughest prisons by with uh, Raphael rowe you've you've hosted season two and three and obviously now the fourth one in the in the new season you go to um paraguay germany mauritius and southern losuto Lesotho, yeah, is that the, the one? It's a, in... it's a mountainous country and it's a landlocked country in South Africa. So it's not South Africa, but it's bang in the middle of South Africa. Right. Okay. And and the first one, because we'll probably what we'll do, guys, the listeners out there, if you, if you haven't watched this on Netflix yet, maybe debate pause on this podcast. Go go and give it a watch and and stuff. I mean, it's a docu- documentary, so there's no real spoilers as it goes but it would be nice for you to have seen the show and then you can now listen to Raphael uh, explain firsthand some of the stories and whatnot so I would suggest you go and check it out I spent most of yesterday yesterday watching it fascinating series the first episode obviously um you go to Paraguay to tam, tam, Takumbu Takumbu there we go <laughs> <laughs> before you came in he had all of these written down and kept going so how do you say that one how do you say that one <laughs> Takumbu I, I, I have the same issue when I'm on the ground actually with some of these terms but then I keep saying them Schwammstadt which was the German one I've still probably been saying that wrong but... yeah that was the one that we were actually going through was yeah, trying to Schwammstadt Schwammstadt yeah uh, but the one in Paraguay which was in the, the heart of the slums that's been branded um, as as the world's most dangerous prison. Do you think it is? It depends how you define dangerous. I mean, I, I, I it's difficult to compare. It's, it's like no other that I've been to. I've never walked into a prison. I mean, I've been into prisons like in um, um, Brazil, for example, where I met people who chopped other people's heads off and used them as footballs and interviewed and spoken to these these prisoners, you you, you know, and watched videos of them kicking their heads around and giggling. And then I'm sitting down interviewing those guys about why they did it. So, you know, when you talk about violent and dangerous, I mean, that was was really shocking. Paraguay and Takumbu shocked me because it was so openly violent in the sense that nearly all of the prisoners that I met openly carried knives. And I'm talking about big knives that yeah. they talked about using or they smoked crack or meth openly, you know, and it wasn't something that the authorities did anything about. And for me, that generates such violence. I mean, they talk about one person gets killed in that prison every two weeks. Um, 
And I met individuals who had committed those murders. Some there's, of it doesn't always make the screen, but but um, yeah, it was a violent and dangerous place. There's a guy called Diego in it that shows you his blade, and it must be like a ten inch blade. And I think he says he says then that every everyone has one of those. Just how safe do you feel in that moment? Because obviously there's precautions. You're working with a Netflix team and what whatnot, but how? How safe are you really? Because if he just put, he stood, he stood like how we are right now, away from you. He can put that in you if he, if he's, if if he's a nutter. Do you know? I think you know when I talk about. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And 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 there have been moments where we have been attacked in Paraguay, in particular. We had snooker balls thrown at our head. Wow. You, you know, by a guy covered in blood. It's not in the film because the snooker ball hit the camera and broke the camera, kind of thing. And it wow. Wasn't so. We were and um, have been attacked in 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 Paraguay. I, I think it goes back to that moment I told you about the fight I had in, in, in England when I was a prisoner and I've been able to look people in the eyes and see what I think is real danger. And I experienced that every day for 12 years. So I like to think sometimes, and this is not a guarantee, obviously, but when I'm talking to individuals like that long before he pulls the fucking knife out, yeah. I've always or already have made an assessment about whether he is a real and present threat to me and whether mm. he is a danger. Given the, the nature of the job that he's doing and the trust he's been given by the prisoners is always taken into consideration as well. So I kind of assess the situation long before I have conversations with them and build up a rapport. That in itself is, is enough to protect me. But you're right, there's nothing to stop him thinking... I mean, he, he would have a lot to lose, but there are lots of prisoners who I've met who wouldn't have anything to lose. Mm. Sticking a knife in me or taking my team hostage is a real threat all the time. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, to murder you is going to be a bit of a win for a, for a guy that's already in prison for the whole whole life. Do you know what I mean? It's like... <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> He's not doing a season five. <laughs> I'm not doing a season five. You just sent a message out. <laughs> I don't think they listen to us in prison, though. Of all, of, all the, of all the things I've survived, you just set me up for death. <laughs> a shitty podcast host from Norwich has just signed your, your death wish. Talk us through um, the t- Tinglado, I think it's called, which was like an outside kind of sheltered, or not sheltered, Maybe. It wasn't shelled. No, it was a corrugated space, concrete space, and and in that space were 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 the lows of the lows, if you like. And that's not my words. I'm just trying to describe because I don't consider anybody. I think they're unfortunate that they've ended up in that situation. But you're talking about individuals in the outside world who are drug habit users. You know, serious drug problems. They get thrown into prison for whatever crime they've committed and they just continue their lifestyle in the confines of a prison space. And this space was like nothing I'd seen before. I mean, I've seen horrendous prison conditions, but I've never seen anything like that in numbers of prisoners that I saw in that Tinlado, which is where individual prisoners are sleeping on concrete floors or they're sleeping on bits of cardboard or really dirty, smelly, and you can't emphasise, you can't smell the television, but fuck, believe me, you can smell it when you're standing there. You know, they're shit and piss. Um, and, and, and they just openly use drugs and trade drugs among themselves all day long, openly in front of the prison guards. You know, in the film, you'll see people swinging little knives around that they use to cut up their drugs, but also to protect themselves and probably use to attack other people. I think that, that you, you know, you can't, I can't emphasise how dangerous that, that space is. And it's controlled by one drug lord who I met and spoke to in there. He is in Paraguay, the biggest drug dealer in the slums outside. So he controls not only 
the drugs on the outside, but he controls the drugs throughout the Paraguayan prison system. Fucking hell. He was moved out. What was really interesting about this this guy, he's a big, muscly guy, you know, and he's somebody that doesn't use drugs himself. Clever guy. But he he was moved out of the prison and the riots kicked off. So the director had to bring him back to the prison to supply the prison with drugs so that they could reduce the violence, which is what I say at the end as I walk out, you know, to keep the peace, he allows this to go on. The director told me, I remember sitting in the office speaking to him, and he said to me, I can't remember the name of the guy, but he sort of said he came into the office, put a load of money on the table, and he said, that's for you for allowing me to continue what I'm doing and bringing me back. And the director said to me, said to me, he didn't take the money. Right, yeah. (laughs) But they're still doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's insane. Because I think at one point you you mentioned that there's 125 inmates to every one officer. No, there are 35 guards to 4,000 prisoners. So whatever that equates to, you're probably right. Right. No, but that probably is what it equates to. So 35 guards on any one occasion who work at that prison, and that's not being in the prison at that very moment, you're talking probably 10 guards on any one occasion trying to... The, the prisoners police themselves. There, there is this kind of trust amongst the prisoners. And in this particular prison, there are different areas, as you saw the Tinlado, and then you've got the space that I was in, and then you've got the other kind of marketplace and all these little... I mean, I'd never... Where I did the tattoo, and I thought I did a good job, actually. <laughs> I, it, Under the circumstances, Under the for circumstances, sure, yeah, yeah. And given that I was tattooing the boss of the market area, you yeah. know, one mistake and I wasn't leaving there. I couldn't believe where he was. I mean, he was the kingpin in turn of the market area, so he rents out all the shops where all the prisoners sort of ply their trade. But where he was sleeping was like in a sewer. It doesn't really come out as you see it in the film. It was dark and dingy, but it was like I had to go through this rabbit warren of, of broken down dungeon down into this what looked like a very deep cellar no windows no light which is where he slept it was just it was just so bizarre and it wasn't allocated to him by the authorities it was a space that the kingpin took for himself wow out of out of anywhere and he's he's chosen chosen that or is that just because of the options he's got available <laughs> I, I think it's because it's the furthest away from from threat because you can't come at him from behind you can only come at him from the front so if he's there at the very corner of that space, no one can attack him from behind so we can see what's coming. Wow. And he probably has guys in the little stairwells and corridors sort yeah. of plotted and protecting him. I mean, there is a, a, a method to this madness. Yeah. It's not just diabolical. There is a clever instinct going on there. Now, you're a, you're a presenter that, that doesn't mind getting his hands dirty because no. we see it. we see in that episode when you... The pris- as a prison truck drives past, drops loads of prison waste. Um, it, it, I think it is in that tingla- tinglado, it is, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and, the band. yeah, and yeah, and 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 you you get in and, and help him sort of like forage for stuff. What kind of stuff is was 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 we looking at there? You you think about putting all of your vegetables into a blender, taking out any goodness in it and any food in it, and then it's just little bits of skin and and bone and seeds that are left, mixed with piss and shit, mixed with Anything that's discarded. I mean, you think of a, you think of your rubbish bin and what you put in your rubbish and then throw out at the end of the day. Times that by 500 and then you get a sense of how there is nothing in there. When he was searching, I was in genuine shock at him scavenging and other prisoners. Some of, They wouldn't take part during that bit of the filming, but you saw they then jumped on the van and they were rummaging to this container. But honestly, I, could, I was picking up bits of things that I wouldn't even give to... Well, I wouldn't give it. I wouldn't even give it to the rubbish. And yet he was taking it and saw there was a commodity there, and there fucking is. He could make money out of those bits of things. And I, I thought he was taking it to eat for himself initially. I thought 
okay, you found yourself a, a pea, you found yourself a rotten orange that's already been eaten and all you've got left is the white bit of dry skin. Oh. But he told me that what he did with this stuff was that he then prepared... He prepared a meal with it and then sold it to another prisoner. So it wasn't even for himself. It was to make money to support his drug habit. And then and then he got these plastic bottles and was cutting them and using them as commodities, yeah. selling them to other prisoners. That, no that, that fascinated me because when he's picking up all these dirty bottles and they're still full of shit on the inside, and then you see you see later on, this is why I say to people, you should, you really need to watch a show before you get involved in this, but you see later on that when he, when you when you, you're all being handed out the um, little bits of food that they get, like the rolls and that, he's cut the bottles in half to make a bowl in which he's then selling for other, other bread rolls and bread stuff. Rolls. Yeah. So, I, I mean... Clever guy, I guess. It, it is. I mean, initially, and this is why it, it, this is why it's important. It's because at face value, you think, "Ugh, scavenger, scavenging through that food. Oh, such a low life." But there is a, a purpose to his reason. You, you know, he does mm. it for a reason, and and you have to sit back and sort of say, "Oh my god," because he does. He, you know, he he sells it for the bread rolls. The bread rolls then he sells to prisoners who want extra bread. It rolls. made sense. It, it yeah. does make sense. But initially, if we just cut out there or I walked away, then it doesn't make sense. It just you know here's another prisoner which is scavenged, which is what we do in British documentaries. We just show the bad and not tell the whole story. Yeah, and we can't do that entirely here. Mm. But at least we finish his story and show that there is a method to his madness. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you, in that same episode you see it you see a shrine um to police officers that have lost their lives while working at that prison and it, i mean it's quite graphic but some of them had lost their lives through like p- prison riots stabbings fires now the for a prison officer losing his life um or, or, or i guess it's always male that work in them them prisons is it or no you do get females right well, well. It, his or her's life um is always a tragedy um stabbings seem like the most common thing but you go on to say in the show that there was there was a guy that had, had been beheaded, which is fucking next next level, next I, level stuff. Y- Did you feel like when you heard that it was time to fuck off out of there? Or it's not the first time I've heard it, and and I know the backstory. I mean, the backstory starts from the very first episode I do, which is in Portovelo in in Brazil, and what you have there is you have. What you don't have almost anywhere in the world, maybe South Africa potentially, but 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 in Brazil you have two faction gangs, the PCC and the Red Command, and these are warring drug gangs, not just in prison. They were created in prison, but they they now spread out and across the whole of Brazil, and they're now moving into other territories like Paraguay. So what was happening in Paraguay is the Brazilian drug gangs who control the drugs and and you know these are big drug dealers but they they control all the prisoners you, you, you know I can't emphasize that these guys do have control over the prisoners and what's happening in Paraguay at the moment is the PCC the Brazilian gangs are going into the Paraguayan prisoners and they're trying to take control from the guy that I met so it was his friends or his comrades or whatever that had their heads taken off just a couple of weeks before I'd gone there. And that was the Brazilian's way of sending a message to him that they're coming. And so when I met him, he had an entourage of prisoners around him. It's quite intimidating, actually. And I think the reason that that interview didn't make the film is because he was very... It, it was just a very difficult interview to, to get across because he had this entourage, denied everything that he was in there for. And I just thought he's not cooperating in the way that we need him to cooperate in the... Se- I mean, I would love to have seen what he had to say in the film, but sometimes you have to make decisions. Um, but that's the reason. So when I'm talking to people, it's because the PCC are now inflicting the beheadings in Paraguay like they do in Brazil on a regular basis. I mean, if you saw what I've seen in Brazil in terms of 
the the bodies piled high without their heads in the prison following the the the, the fighting between the two gangs it, it's horrifying you've seen that fucking hell and, and then obviously- i meet i i meet the guys who are involved who kind of but but it's a it, it's a different culture you know it, it it's their world you, you you know it's like i was saying at the very beginning of this podcast you know my world of growing up on a council estate and criminality being around me was all i knew mm. well you know magnify that a million times and go into the slums of Brazil and all these guys know is murder and it means nothing to them absolutely Mm. nothing to them to take someone's life or to even lose their own life when you're standing in front of a young man of 18 and you're saying to him you know why don't you look for something different he said it's death or or, you know kill or be killed and Mm. they mean it yeah they genuinely mean it it shocks and there's a guy in in the the final episode in the fourth one that tells you that he would die for money and it's such a sad Sad outlook on life, isn't it? But I mean, they're from much sort of tougher upbringings than than I can ever ever imagine. Then we move on to um, the second episode, which was how do you pronounce it, Stevie? Schwarmstadt. 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 This was a, a a complete contrast in a way to the to the first one in Paraguay, where they brand this as the therapy prison, don't they? So so there's a scene when you. When you first, this is in Germany, by the way, and, and when you first go in, they, I was shocked to see that they give you your own keys to your cell. <laughs> is that anything you've ever experienced before? N- never. <laughs> N- never. You know, I was so anti-prison. I would never... Lots of prisoners, when it's bang-up time, they bang their own door. Mm. You, you know, go behind the door, everybody's got to be behind for a certain time, and then I was never one of those. The screws always... And they didn't like me for it because it meant they had to walk along the corridor, and I was always in the corner cell for the reasons I said earlier, and no one can attack you then. Mm-hmm. And, and I'd never shut my door, so it was always shut for me. There was never a handle inside or a key inside. So, yeah, it did shock me and surprise me. But, but don't let that fool you. It doesn't mean that those prisoners can let themselves in and out of that cell at any time. There is still a control by the guards. They have access to their cells during their unlock period so they can enter and exit their own cell. But during the lockup period... They, oh. are, they are confined and can't come out of the cell. Oh, right. I think maybe that's what I didn't get. I thought they could just like fr- freely go around. Was that was that prison on a whole? Was that way more relaxed than the other ones? There, there was a tension about it because um, when I first got there and, and, and the dynamics are, are important in all of the prisons and the building of the trust, whether that's because prisoners find out that I myself have been to prison, so they give me a little bit more respect and time, whether it's because I build up a trust through the questions. But Germany... Um, it initially started out where they were very cooperative and prisoners wanted to talk to me. You know, I was playing football with them and I kind of got in with them. By the end of the film, there was a real animosity going on. And I don't know where that came from. Towards you? Not to, to, to my whole filming team. Oh, right. You, you know, there was an animosity that you felt. There were people that we were hoping to speak to that I'd cultivated in the early days yeah. that had been warned by other prisoners not to talk to us. Um, oh. That doesn't happen very often, but it's always something I'm warning my team that I'm working with. Most of the people that come in with me have never been in prison before, never been inside a prison before. Yeah. So they're going, it, it, go and talk to a prisoner quite openly like it's their mate. And I'm sort of saying next week you're going to be killed because that person now knows where you live, how old you are, whether you've got a family, what hotel we're staying at, you're putting us all at risk. I'm always telling my team that when we're not actually filming in the moment, get your back up against the wall so you can see everything that's going around you because you just don't know whether there is that person you've now set up to kill me (laughs) out there or or in there. There is always a real present threat. You know, this is not staged. We don't go in there with... with, We have a format. Mm. 
But like in Germany, the, 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 the atmosphere changed and it changed quite quickly where people were not cooperating. Luckily for us, it was at the end of the shoot and we yeah. got most of the characters that we had spoken to. But it was quite a tricky one. I think when you when you emphasise that how real it is and how it's not set up, I think that shines through by the fact that you are quite clearly in some scenes like unnerved and, and like a little bit a little bit on edge. Has there ever been a moment during filming the whole series or all of the series that it's been too much and you've had to like get out of there I, I think you're thinking about Lesotho I think Lesotho mm. was for me for the very first time and and even in um, British prisons where I come face to face with guys who wanted to kill me and I had to fight for my life mm. or, or at least talk my way out of a situation um, even then when it was threatening and dangerous I don't think I ever f- have ever felt as uncomfortable as I did during the initiation period in the Lesotho episode yeah where i go into this this dormitory with all these prisoners mm. i'd already been warned if you saw just before i get into the dormitory this bloody guard is saying to me as i'm carrying this mattress that you're on your own you know these guys will rape or kill you and and there will be no one there to protect you so be prepared for that and, so, and he meant it he wasn't just it wasn't for effect he was telling me the existence of, of what i was about to experience what all prisoners who go there experience let's, let's jump there now and we'll go back to the the german one okay. in a minute um, okay. this is this is the one in, in in southern southern africa and um the prison's very much populated by a lot of sex offenders isn't it i think you you mentioned at one point that 45% of, of of the inmates in there had been had been sentenced because of um rape and and whatnot so i mean i think we're all in agreement that's pretty much the worst crime there that there, there is and and you you um you often mention that in the show because you go from maybe a prison where you might you're always speaking to the to to like people that have committed horrible crimes but you might have gone from like a prison a prisoner who's robbed a few cars you know in this prison you're facing on the people that you're very outspoken about for the right reasons, but does that me- how does that change your approach to to entering that that prison when you know they've done those things? I, I I try to not let it change my approach, but I can't but help when I'm looking a man in a face who's committed such an horrendous crime, and it's the same for murder. But my reaction is different because maybe because I was accused of a murder I didn't commit, maybe because murder is definitive. You know, you've killed someone, um, the victims are suffering. But they're still, it, it's a different, they're still living with the fact that they've lost a loved one or something. It just feels slightly different. I, I always try to remain professional and I always try to, to not judge the individual, but I can't help but look at that person in the face and think what you've done is, is, is premeditate. You can kill someone because Jack, me and you could have a fight right now. You fall over, you hit your head. Well, and you happened die. to my dad. That's exactly what happened to my dad. Oh, he, really? Yeah, he got, he literally got in a fight with, with, um, so, short story. Do you want to? Shall I yeah. just say now? He um, he he was in Thetford, and I think one of his his mates at the time got pissed, and uh, some older bloke in the pub challenged him to a race to Norwich, um, which is about thirty mile thirty mile drive. And uh, my dad was like, "No, he's not doing it. He's not doing it." And then the guys turned around and was like, "Who the fuck are you? Is you his boyfriend? Whatever." Blah blah blah. They ended up just having a scrap. My dad's always brought me up to not fight. He's always said, "Just just run away," because he knows the the other side of the coin. And then my dad hit him, and then the guy 
face, fallen to the floor, hit his head, and then died. And now, for the rest of my dad's life, he has to he has to walk around with people knowing that he's he's killed someone. He did six years for manslaughter. So you're exactly right. Yeah, it's a, to put you back on your train of thought, what you were saying that things can turn in a in a moment's where yeah. where um, that's a shocking story. I mean, um, uh, 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 but I, you know, I'm sure you learned a lot lot from that. Whereas mm. something like rape, it requires premeditation. You take someone, you take their clothes off, you violate them in a way where you're doing everything that you're doing is premeditated. In my my, my view, you, mm. you, you know, you're doing things deliberately. You, you nick something from a sweet shop to sell or whatever. You have a motive to make money because you can't afford to feed your kids or something. Yeah. So, so, so I kind of measure it in, in that sense. Mm. So going into this particular prison where I knew most of the offenders were um, in there for sexual offences... I try to put it into context and the culture that they come from. You know, it, it's difficult to measure who they are with who we are and how we see things in, in our world because, mm. you know, some of them come from a remote part of the world where they're, I wouldn't say they're uneducated, but they're not um, as educated about certain things that we are so their education is different i would never say anybody is more educated than anybody else of course, i yeah. mean you can be more academically but your experience and my experiences are very different and my education is very different from yeah, yeah. it doesn't make you any better than me that you went to a, a university or blah 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 yeah so i'm not demeaning these people that i met simply because they come from a remote region um and they don't have very much and da 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 so 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 their world revolves around the, the the law which mm. allows them to yeah. to to have sex with women women are considered as second citizens so they live in a world where they the culture of it is completely different i get exactly what what you're trying to say i i, I really do like it doesn't mean that we're sat here saying oh it's any less wrong in the, in those countries but they've been brought up on a culture that that's ingrained into their brains so often like or, or, or maybe you could even argue a case do they really know how wrong that is what, i don't, I don't yeah. think they do well you there, mm. there's one guy in there isn't there who i meet in the workshop who's now doing 70 something a year yeah. And I really genuinely, and it made me think for the very first time, I really genuinely don't believe that he knew. Because, he, you know, you got the bit that you get in the, the, the episode, but I spent more time, as I do with these people. He's a young lad, isn't he? He was a young lad, and he was a, you know, a feral lad who was doing lots of things. But as he was describing to me the crimes that he committed previous to the, the sexual offences and whatever, he, he didn't see it any different than, than burgling a house or, or doing something, because he didn't consider taking a woman and raping her with his friends as as any more of a crime than a driving offence or something like that. Not because he didn't think that the crime was serious enough, but he doesn't know any different. And that mm. was hard to, to comprehend. So when I came away from that interview, I thought to myself, fucking hell, for the first time, I'm questioning if people really understand the crimes and the nature of the crimes that they committed. Yeah, there, there was the other guy um, who was doing quite a lot of years, I think it might have been about 15 years for rape, and you asked how old the girl was, and he said 10 or 12. And when he said that, that kind of shocked me. So I was like, how could you not know the age? Mm. Like, obviously, at the time he wouldn't, but once you've been convicted, you think that's something that would stick with you. He's... And if that doesn't, it's just so casual. Like, it, it just seemed a little bit strange to not know the answer to that question. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? 
Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. One plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler. He seemed to have a. I mean, I wasn't there. I wasn't looking into the man's eyes. He seemed to have a bit of remorse about it. But the, the scary thing was with him. Before, because you 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 speak to this guy, you know the like the chubby lad that you're yeah. you're cleaning the rugs yeah, with, yeah. aren't you? I'm doing my little dance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you're you're chatting to him before you ask his crime um, for a, quite some time. God knows how long it was before the before the cameras were on or what got cut out. But we even see it as as the viewers that you're chatting to him for quite some time. And I mean, I'll be the first to say he just seemed like a normal lad you was having a laugh about him about him being chubbier than you and it was just like you it's somebody you could bump into down the shops like he was no different and then i see your face change the moment that he told told you that he'd raped a 10 year old kid how do you as as an interviewer i mean we're lucky we get lovely people like you and and youtubers but i don't know how you would approach your approach to that man must have changed halfway through that conversation Uh, um, but i think that's key to what i do i think it's important for what i do i don't find out i knew that a lot of the prisoners in that particular prison room for sex offences, I don't know who they are. I don't find out what somebody has done before I speak to them. So I don't Mm. want my team to tell me that he's in for rape and he's done that. On occasion, I know, you know, the mass murderers that are in cells, in cells, in cells. I know that because they wouldn't be there and I wouldn't be taken there if we weren't sort of convincing the authorities to give us that kind of access. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know what he was in prison for. Right. I I knew he was a prisoner, obviously, and I met with him and we have this little bit of banter. You just knew you were having a little dance with him on some rugs. Having a little dance, washing washing the things... um, not knowing what his crime was, anticipating it. And as the conversation evolved, he told me that he was in for raping a 10, 12-year-old girl. And so you get my natural reaction um, in the same way I would if someone gave me a joke and made me laugh. Mm. You, you know, So I'm going to be shocked by what he said because that's how I feel about that particular crime. And so it genuinely, I think, comes out. But it is part of the format that I do tell my team for 90% of the people I meet that I don't know what they're in for. Do you prefer to find out after getting to know them as a person first? Because a lot of the time you always asked a few minutes into the interview, but obviously in your world, you would have spoken to him a lot more before that moment. Well, I think you just hit the nail on the head when you sort of said he seemed like a lovely guy. And that's how I'm judging people beforehand. They're a prisoner. I was a prisoner. Uh, and I'm a lovely guy. I wasn't then, but I'm a lovely guy now, kind of thing. So so I, I think it's unfair to judge someone based on the fact that they're in prison. Once you know what they're in prison for, what they've done, what they think about that, whether they're remorseful or not, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then you can make 
uh, uh, judgment. Your dad, you said, has been in prison for mm. manslaughter. People mm. judge him as being, you know, if he was just judged as a man who's committed this crime, mm. no one would. But you know him as your dad. He's you know the loveliest he's like, man in the world. He's brought me up with the, all my morals and everything that I have. Well, like, there you go. Yeah, and I wouldn't be like a, the, the success that I think I am today without without him. He's taught me everything. So I think I think it's really admirable how how you do that, and I think that it's, it's testament to your work and why you are you are a great journalist because you do go in with a very open mind and 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 you're able to because as you just quite rightly said you've been that person in prison that people look at as a monster when you know you're not so jack if mm. this if this country had its way i would have been hung when the when the tabloid newspapers were were calling for this m25 gang to be um caught they were calling to bring back hanging so they could have hung me if Fucking i was in america man. i'd have been dead so I was being called a monster. I was being called all the things under the sun. There's nothing worse, is there, to be, be, be called that and bounce back. So I think it is important that I allow people to, to get a feel for who this person is. Like M. Pity, he was another one, the guy who I played that game with. The yeah. Stones. It, it, yeah, and, mm. and in the room. But look at the fucking horrendous crime that he committed. You know, not, and, and, and I can't comprehend that he, he, he you know, carjacking. OK, you got the car, you got what you set out for. Why'd you rape the woman? And he just said, because I could, because she didn't give me what I wanted when I wanted it. And it's like George dropping stuff. It's like, how can you say that? How can you even think that? But before I knew that, I got to know him, all right. He tried to rape me in the cell and kill me. I tried to run out of, but it's about trying to get to know people before you judge them based on what other people have told you about them. What was that like that you just, just joked about that moment that he tried to rape you, but... It is that black and white, really, isn't it? Like you go into the you, you go into the cell. You meet. I think there's. Didn't they say there's thirteen yeah, other cellmates in there? Mm-hmm. Um, nine of them had uh, have, have been in for sexual offences, mainly rape. What is that like? I, I know that most of my questions today is like, what is that like? But it's, I can't think of anything better to say. Like, well, I, I, I set it up by saying this: I don't know where I'm going, who I'm going to meet. The team sometimes go into the prison maybe a week before I go in and they try and identify. I mean, it's kind of research. They're going in, you know, what's it like? Where are we going? Are we going to be safe? So they do that. And then they meet a couple of individuals. They won't meet everybody, but they meet a couple of individuals. So when I come into the prison and, and, and being processed, I don't see anything until I get off of that prison van in handcuffs and enter that prison. And it's all real. They're told to treat me like a prisoner. The prisoners know that we're making a documentary, obviously. Not everybody does. You know, there have been occasions where the cameras are pointing in that direction. I'm in the prison unit from leaning up against the one prisoners have come up to me and sort of confronted me and like you're the new prisoner what are you and what are this that and the other I'm with them mate <laughs> don't don't you know I'm with this camera crew and then they back off quite quickly but when I walked into that dormitory um, I'm meeting them for the first time and we often ask the prisoners to treat me like a prisoner if I was a real prisoner coming in what would you do um, sometimes they am they roll up a little bit you know mm. we're not asking them to act or anything you know if it's just welcoming me put their arm around me make me feel comfortable and say you're now one of us live with us but in this occasion um that's what they do and they openly admit it and so when i was sitting there having been told by the the screw the prison guard not too long ago that you know i'm on my own and they could kill or rape me i'm now sitting there and these guys are sort of saying and they were deadly serious i i'd like to think that i can read these guys but they were coming at me in a way 
that for the first time made me feel very intimidated and scared in, in this whole series. A, a prisoner was killed in Costa Rica in, in the block next to me. That didn't scare me. Guys were telling me they were going to stab me if I didn't pay their money. And I told them I got my two That was in, in Colombia. Yeah, somebody tweeted me about that yesterday and yeah. said the fucking balls on you to stand yeah, yeah, there and yeah. do that. For some reason, a lot of listeners, watchers and viewers think I've got balls of steel. I, I just want to correct the record. They're just like anybody else's. They're soft. They're soft. And if a ball hits them, they hurt. Let's just make that clear. But yeah, I was for the first time quite scared. And genuinely, I didn't run to that door for dramatic effect or entertainment. I, for the first time, felt really uncomfortable and scared because I knew I could be overpowered. It's one thing having a one-to-one or fighting two people. But when I ran to that door, um, I wanted to get out of there. Mm. And then as I got to the door, the atmosphere changed quite quickly. And then I stopped and I thought, when this door's locked, you can't get out of here. And anybody that comes in here for real would suffer what I was about to to suffer or what they told me they were going to do, real or not. And then we kind of, I, I tried to use the, I've been in prison, I'm tough and I'm, I'm not. So, you know, I tried to turn the situation and it worked to some extent. Yeah. But it was genuine. Yeah. Uh, watching that, I found really uncomfortable. And then obviously later on in that episode, they then tell you that they do actually do that and that they have wives in the prison and, and that you were going to be their wife. Uh, wife. Uh, I found it quite funny though, when when you're d- dashing out in the, in the moment to grab of the grab, shoes. grab your trainers. <laughs> you did Man. not want to leave your shoes. <laughs> Let them go. <laughs> I like how they went. No, they didn't even try and grab you. We're having a Nike. I think you you grabbed one, didn't you? And because like, I know you got on try to. Yeah, I, I wasn't successful. You know, I needed to run one time out. I put them on and then just shoot off. No, yeah, yeah no, I, I don't know why. It was all instinctive. Mm. It was all instinctive because I don't know what to expect. I don't know whether they're going to welcome me, give me a bowl of soup or something, give me a glass of water, or what really happened which is what really happened there and 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 you know the environment the, the setup before I got there and everything made it all the more incredibly uncomfortable. Mm. It's an absolutely fascinating show. Check it out if you haven't already. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of shows out there that, that that are like that, that explore tough prisons and whatnot, but seeing it from your angle as a, as a man that's experienced it for real for, for 12 years is, um, is something else, I think. What, there was a guy in the... Same one we were talking about. The name I keep forgetting the name. Uh, oh, the end of the episode, the last interview. <laughs> well, there's in, there's in, two in, that fascinate me in that. Like, in, in the Southern African one. Yeah, mm. I, f- I feel like you you've met a lot of um, the worst of the worst, the the, cra- the crazy people and whatnot. There's two in in I think both in are in this episode, and the first one that I'd like to speak about is the uh, the, the rapist guy with the car tires. And stuff like that was in Mauritius. Was it? Oh, okay. Luxury island place where. Right. Okay. Before we get to that, then the the one that I must be thinking of is the the man that killed his. You know what I'm going to say? Can you can you tell us a bit about him? So I'm. um, We're always looking to meet and talk to interesting people. I say interesting people, people that have committed crimes. Um, And then I hear about this individual who done some despicable crimes. Didn't know what they were. I was just told that he'd uh, generated a lot of publicity in a country that doesn't normally write about these sort of things. So I asked to meet him. The um, prison guard said to me a day later or something, he'd be up for talking to you. So off I went to meet this guy. Didn't know what he was in for. So I then sit down outside the cell of this prisoner who comes. He's got very shifty eyes. So I I couldn't look him in the eye and read him. Mm. It was a bit harder than, than, than normal. We sat down and I started talking to him about what he was in there for and he told me that um, under the influence of some hallucinated drugs that he took 
that were given to him by a witch doctor, he then and his wife killed their four children. They um, four small kids. So I think the smallest was two years old. The oldest <sighs> was twelve years old. They killed all four of their children. Um, what was not mentioned in the film was that they also cut the hearts out of these kids and buried them separately. Oh, my God. He hadn't been convicted, so I'm going to say, as a disclaimer, you know, he's innocent until proven guilty, although he admits what he did, what his defence is, that he did this under the influence of a witch doctor. Now, why I'm not comfortable with what he has to say is because... He committed these crimes, buried the bodies of his kid, hid the hearts of his kids, and then continued living his life for the next four months. And it was only because it wasn't like he was caught overnight and now regrets it because the drugs have worn off. He tried to conceal, as did his wife, for the next four months. And it was only because the local villagers in the village that he came from in this remote part of the world started to smell death. And so they were then asking, where are your kids? We haven't seen your kids for a long time. They kept fobbing them off, saying that they were, you know, away with relatives. And then lo and behold, they then brought in the village police who then searched their farm and found the bodies of these kids. And they said that they did it because... And, and, and again, I put this in there. These people do come from a world where they believe in witchcraft in the mm. same way that people here believe in Christianity or, 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 or other religions, you mm. know. So they believe in witchcraft and... I just couldn't believe why he was telling me he was prepared to kill his kids because it was going to bring him wealth and fortune. So replacing your kids for money, killing your kids for money, it was just shocking. Do, it, it was horrible. Do you think the witchcraft stuff holds up in court there as well? It does. So, it, so it, it, it there does. is a chance that he would actually get... If, if he can prove, if his lawyers can prove that he had taken the drug that then made him act... Um, out of character or whatever. And that's putting then, it lightly. Yeah, Fucking hell. Th- then the chances are that, and because it's it's been known, other people have. Um, Fast crazy hell. With, with the details with that, with the hearts are particularly gruesome. Is that the reason that that didn't get put kept in the final cut of the of the Netflix show? It's it's because it's gruesome, but not really. It's more to do with time. You, you know, we've only got forty eight minutes, and and you know, there's lots of questions around all of these characters and there's more details even chubs who i mm. kind of did the dance with <laughs> you, you, you know who turned out to be a kiddie rapist mm. remorseful or not there's there's more to his story than meets the eye but, uh, you know he's a wife for example would deny it to me on camera but the reality is you know one of the reasons he survives in there is because he he's become the wife of another prisoner but he would never admit that to me so there are lots of elements that we can't always bring into the film i'd love to i'd love to just allow it to play out because there's some fascinating stuff that don't always make the film mm. um so yeah that's why it's such a privilege to have you here today to hear, hear hear the stories that didn't quite make the cut i guess that is my next question is there any has there ever been a moment like a big big moment that you thought would perhaps make the show that hadn't made the show for whatever reason well i'd say the whole fucking lot should be in there. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> because i go through a lot you know going back into this environment talking to these murderers and rapists and kid killers and, and, and shoplifters and thieves and whatnot. And it takes a lot out of me, you know. I, I spend a lot of time... Um, no, I think we do a good job at trying to reflect because it's not just about the entertainment. It's not just about the, the gruesome stuff and the harrowing stuff and the scary stuff. It's also about the, the bigger picture. What is prison for? Does it rehabilitate? What are the conditions like? Have they got the right resources? Are the staff protected in the way? You know, so the picture is bigger. So we have to include those things, which is why I spend a day with the guards mm. trying to find out more about their side. Um, mm. And if and when possible, a, a, a member of parliament or a politician who runs the prisons to try and 
put it all into context because I think it's bigger than just an entertainment. For me, it is, or I yeah. wouldn't do it. I wouldn't just go in for the, the titillation factor. No. I, I mean, that comes out in itself, but I try to remain true to who I am yeah. all through the show. There are obviously occasions where I have to do things I'm not comfortable with, but I, I, I do them. Um, but, you know, the Paraguay I talk about, you know, I'm, I'm about to interview Pablo. He's the guy with a tattoo and he's become a cool celeb in, in Paraguay at the moment. I'm told that he's been moved to another prison. Because of the show? Because of the show. Yeah. Is he the tattoo artist? He's the tattoo artist. You know, I mean, yeah. a brutal, you know, assassination of his dad and shot his, another one of his relatives. Uh, uh, and he gives good reason for doing that. He's good reason the right thing. I mean, he, he, he explains why he, and there's more to his story, but I, my understanding that he's gone on to become quite a cool, you know, a, a famous ind- individual. But while I was playing pool with him, when I first met him and I was beating him at the game, I'm just going to point that out. <laughs> um, a, a, a transgender individual, I don't know, transvestite or is a transgender, but he approached the, the pool table um, out of camera shot, covered in blood. So blood was running down his face. And as I looked up, he picked up a snooker ball and threw it at me. I was able to kind of left side it because I'm fast like that. So it didn't hit me. He picked up another one and threw it at my cameraman, who is where you are, so you imagine the camera on that side of your head. By the time he turned round, the ball hit the camera. There was no rushing of guards to protect us because there's none around. We're on our own. We, we, we have one guard who, if when necessary, opens and locks doors so we can get through the prison because you can't give them to the prisoners. Yeah. Um, but it kind of... It was kind of a moment where you thought, do you attack him? Do you do, do you go after him? How do you respond? None of the prisoners kind of responded because they see that on a daily basis. And it just kind of diffused itself quite quickly. A few people laughed. I think his partner or friend came, put his arms around him and pulled him away. My my thinking is the reason he did that is because he wanted us to film with him. And because we didn't film with him, because I think he kind of offered himself up as somebody who could give us an interview, um, I don't know why we didn't film with him, but we didn't. And then he got narky about it. And that's not the first time that's happened. And I'm constantly reminding my team that we must show respect to all of the prisoners and not just the ones that we're meeting and talking to, because it's the guys that are behind us who are watching us and listening to us who are getting jealous and envious, maybe, that they're not on the camera Mm. and want to be. So they then start to poison other prisoners and that puts us in real danger. So I'm always telling the team to be aware of that and, and conscious of that. When I was interviewing, let me give you this one. When I was in, and I know you're going to go there in a minute, the Mauritius guy, mm-hmm. I sit there and as well as doing the interview, and you don't need to do this with me, Jack, neither of you do. But when I'm sitting there and I'm talking to those guys who have committed these horrendous crimes, I'm thinking, he comes at me with the left hand, I'll block it like that and then I'll punch him in the face. If he comes at me straight like that, I'll go through his neck and start strangling. So I'm thinking defence mechanism, although I'm interviewing them about their horrendous crimes, if they're unpredictable. So I'm not just sitting there taking in the answers. I'm thinking, how am I going to defend myself if this guy decides there's a moment here of him attacking me? Because I don't have guards around me to protect me. And that Paraguayan incident reminds me all the time that the threat is real. Fucking hell. Imagine that. I mean, I stress enough just asking questions, <laughs> let alone the threat of being yeah. punched or, or stabbed. We let's go there. So the the one in the Mauritius, it was um, it was called Melrose, wasn't it? Mm. The, the prison, and that one um, was branded as the extreme punishment prison. And uh, I think I'm right in saying three years ago. Was it three years ago? They had a change in kind of like the government and the leadership at the prison, and it went from being quite a lax kind of place where the prisoners could 
pretty much do what they want um, to being very regimented and everything was banned, even down to the cigarettes, which seemed to surprise you quite a lot on, on there. Good thing or a bad thing? The banning of the cigarettes or the changing of the regime? Let's, let's go to the to, to the banning of the cigarettes. That like just how strict it was is that a, is that a bad thing? Uh, yeah, I, I I think it is actually because I think you're taking away something. You know, look when you lock somebody up, regardless of the crime they've committed, um, that's the punishment. The punishment is taking their liberty, locking them up in prison, mm. and saying you are now not a part of society. Once you're in prison, that, in my view, is punishment and enough. You know, it's tough. I don't care where you are in the world. And people often say to me, you know, that's a bit of a luxury prison. That one's shocking. But for me, when your liberty is taken away, you're taken away from the people you love and all that kind of thing. Let's forget the crimes for the moment. I'm just sort of the, the reality of prison. That's what it's about. Mm. To then go on and punish the prisoners in prison by taking away things like cigarettes, not giving them, um, you know, a, a, a access to having a shower, keeping their self clean, their hygiene and stuff like that. That is excessive punishment. And taking away their cigarettes in this particular prison, um, yeah, it is used. And I mentioned in my time in prison, you know, tobacco and cigarettes are a commodity. It makes the prison work. And for a lot of the guards, they don't mind it because it means those who don't have any support outside and can't afford to buy those sort of things, they can work in the prison doing certain things to earn those things. Taking away those cigarettes created, but it wasn't just taking away the cigarettes in this particular prison. It was the the, the sort of rod iron fist that this this new director had come in with, and he was kind of running a regime that was quite eerie. It was very austere. It was very intimidating. You know, I mm. I go into prisons. Prisoners are quite happy to talk because they're they're, they're outgoing. You know, tough guys, mm. some of them or, or whatever. But these guys were terrified to talk because of the consequences. The consequences of telling me or sharing their stories, um, which is interesting because, you know, our negotiations with the prisons is that they cannot control who we speak to, where I go, you know, providing it doesn't, um, you know, expose security or anything that's going to jeopardise their working. Yeah. So when the prisoners are being very cagey and scary, and you saw that in this particular mm. place, it's because they were fearful. That's horrible, isn't it? That is uh, like, uh, what, what? There's basic human rights to prisoners, isn't there? No matter what they've done, surely. And and therein lies the dilemma. Is there, you know, once you've done something that warrants you being sent to prison, where does the punishment stop? What rights do you have in this country? We don't have the right to vote if you're in prison. And that's one of your, once you're 18, it should be a right that you decide who runs this country, whether you're a prisoner or not, but you're not allowed to do that. Mm. Um, and it can be really extreme in, in other prisons. And this was a prison that was really extreme. But having said that, there are things, you saw me doing a little bit of Tai Chi and whatnot. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so they do offer other things. And I, I'm a strong believer that if you if if you succumb to the punishment and live by that suffering, it will make your time in prison a lot harder, as mm. it did my time. I think if you buy into taking part in opportunities to change your life, then you can benefit. It was quite strange to see, obviously, over the episodes, prisons at completely opposite ends of the scale. So in the first prison, they were doing crack just out, out in the open. And then in that prison, they couldn't even do anything without a guard and smoke a cigarette is that where they mentioned the water the water yes. cell probably Which seemed strange probably the most shocking punishment i've ever heard in prison and i mean prison as you quite rightly said is punishment enough but yeah talk us through that water cell 
Well, what the guy told me is that when you get put into the cell and you saw the guy looking through the, the, the eyes, I call him, you know, he was like, I, I was taken to the segregation block to, to see what it was like. And then I kind of reminisce, this is what punishment is like. You know, when you're confined in here for 23 hours a day, it kind of closes in on your mind. And if you're here for long enough, it will do psychological damage. I'm psychologically damaged from those experiences. And when I walk out of that cell, I see these eyes looking out of the, the thing. OK, this guy was on medication. I speak to him. But before that, I spoke to another prisoner who very cagely told me that when you go into the punishment block, um, one of the punishments is that they fill the cell up with water so that you can't sleep on the floor. So they take your mattress out. I mean, that happens in British prisons when you're on punishment. They take the mattress out so you have to sit on the hard floor. You've got nowhere to lie on because they see that as a luxury. Um, happened to me many occasions. So they take the mattresses out. So all it is is concrete, you know, the concrete made up inside the cell and then they fill the cell with water so that you can't lie down on the floor fuck it as simple as that part of the, the guard obviously denied that the prisoner said it's true who do you believe yeah there was a bit of uh yeah that was strange about. we were just saying how how do you actually know it seems like a very strange thing for someone to make up it it, it does um and why would he just say that he, he could have said they come in and beat you yeah he, he could have said a, a number of different things it's so um, specific i think so i think specific. i think we all kind of know who we believe in that situation well, like, well the truth of the matter is that the guard that said to me it doesn't happen said nothing fucking happens now i i spoke to him sort of off camera if you like or or when they're telling me fibs and 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 trying to paint a different picture um you know, I speak to them about other things and, and, and which is why you see me walking down the corridor and we talk about me being to the left to him and him saying that I'll keep you to my left. So you, and I'm sort of saying, what, so you can't punch me with your right hand. I didn't just make that up at the top of my head. It's because of what I've been hearing going on in that segregation unit from guards as well. So there yeah. are some guards who will tell you off camera what really goes on. And that... I think is a reflection of that regime. The, 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 this is not Mama's house. This is prison yeah. kind of thing. He is, you know. I think he's trying to do the right thing. I just think he does it in the wrong way. In mm. the same way that the director in the Belize episode, for example, which is not in these four, but one of the previous episodes, talks about people are born evil and criminal, and that's his mentality. That only you know, God can change their behaviour. And I'm kind of like, you think people are born with criminal genes? I yeah. mean, where'd you get that from? So, so it's what you hear off a camera that sometimes dictates what I talk about on camera in the best possible way I can without exposing what I've been told. Why do the prisons allow the filming? What, what, why do they want to be broadcast? I think the bottom line is in somewhere like Paraguay, it's because the director who's trying to run that establishment can't run it because he doesn't have the finances and by oh. exposing it to the world it's as simple as that if people see how bad this place is and i've had lots of messages from people on social media who um, come from that country or from outside of that country who have said to me what can i do how can i help can i set up a charity you know some wealthy people as well who've come and sort of said can we do something although they talk about the corruption and how difficult it is mm. but i think that's the bottom line they want to show either how good they are like the german prison you know mm -hmm. we, we run our prisons on therapy we look at rehabilitation nor way it's same um paraguay because we don't have the resources lututu because it's this hidden world and they want their communities because often somewhere like mauritius for example often the public believe that prisoners are living a life of luxury that they have this they have that and the other and that's the picture that's painted i've had lots of messages from people in mauritius who said i really didn't know that that's what our prisons was like i always believed that they had luxury cells and stuff like that because this is a new prison that was built not too long ago um, with 
millions and millions of pounds and they don't think that that money should have been spent on the prison but now they can see that actually it's not quite what they thought it was right fair enough so it's often a message to the public what the prison is often trying to portray yeah yeah i think that that's the bottom line Mm. have you had over any of the seasons many changes made any changes thanks to your show to any of these prisons I know you've just said about like people wanting to donate and stuff, but is there? Have you actually heard of any big changes for anything? Well, I, I mean, in the recent series, the Paraguay one, I've heard that the government have decided to build a new prison to replace that particular prison, which I said at the end should be erased to the ground. Um, and yeah, I think in other places they've introduced other methods of dealing with prisoners based on the exposure or they've been given more resources from the governments. Um, And then there are individuals. I I don't. I made the rule that when I, you know, I build up a rapport with some prisoners, I leave the prison, I leave it behind. You, Mm. You know, I have a shower, I wash away the thoughts, the feelings and everything that comes with it. That's how I coped in the real prison. That's how I cope leaving these prisons. And so I've had prisoners who have got out contact me um, to tell me how well they're doing. Uh, the Panther in the Paraguay film, the boxer who was able to get out and what's happened to him um, and, and how they get on. But um, it's not my remit to kind of, I'd love to follow it up at some point, mm. but it would take too much of my time to yeah. even think about that. I hope that I've done enough to generate enough public interest to question what is going on in that prison, where it needs to change, or mm. for at least them to see what's really going on in their name, with their money. You mentioned, um, just before we finish, I, I want to quickly talk about the guy in Mauritius. Yeah. Um, the only time in the in the series that I watched where you tell the cameras to cut is quite a quite a big moment. Um, you also, I think you'd learned just before you met him what his crimes were, because um, you, you mentioned in this interview that sometimes when they were terrible crimes, you'd learn, you'd learn of that beforehand, just to give you a little bit of a run-up. And uh, you made it clear you didn't want to touch him, didn't want to touch, shake his hand for... It, 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 what, was that, what was that whole th- thing like? What was his crimes? I, I, I think the rape is the, 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 the thing. I don't want to shake the hand of a man who has deliberately gone out and, and violated a woman or a man and committed these rapes. I, I, I don't, I, I just, I feel uncomfortable in, in that situation. So that's the reason I won't shake somebody's hand if I know that they're already in horrendous crime. It might sound weird to people to think, well, you'll shake the hand of a murderer or a thief. And in my opinion, that's just as bad, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But look, we've all got our, our thing, haven't we? And that's, mm. my, that's my thing. I feel like I'm, not I that I've been enough. raped. I, I don't know anybody in my family that has been raped or gone through it. So it's not coming mm. from a place of... Um, experience, mm. it's coming from a place that it just makes me feel uncomfortable to shake the hand of a rapist knowing what they, they've done. So yeah. I kind of try and make a rule there. Sometimes I have and I didn't know. Brazil is where I learned my lesson. This guy covered me in mud. If you haven't seen the Brazil episode, you've got to. I get covered in, in mud by this guy. I'm down on, I've just got my boxer shorts on for all those ladies out there. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've got my boxer shorts on. This guy covers me in mud. I will come back to your guy, but he covers mm. me in mud. Right. So we're doing this ritual. I call it the Amazon ritual. Covers me in mud from head to toe. Makes me look like Shrek, someone said. But I'm covered in head to toe mud. And then I cover him in head to toe. I don't know what he's in for. And then I find out he's a fucking serial rapist. And I feel so uncomfortable knowing that. And I don't let men touch my body. I've never let a man touch my body, to be honest. But here is a man for the first time beyond a massage therapist touching my body from head to toe and then I find out he's a rapist. It made me feel so uncomfortable. Mm. So I wouldn't take um, shake the hand of this individual in, in this, this prison because of the nature of the crimes that he committed. And so when I'm in the cell and I'm interviewing this guy, it's quite clear from, from the get-go that he's a disturbed character. 
it's quite clear that he's on medication because it's all round his cell and he behaves in such a shifty way. It was quite a, an intimidating, uncomfortable situation. So then I've got to sit down and try and draw this out without um, judging him, if you like. I've already judged him in the sense that I know what he's in. So I do this interview and I talk to you about wanting to kind of go for the neck or to prep myself because we sit that close, closer than what you and I are now. And there's nothing between us. There's no guards there, although there was a guard in this particular. And then we have the conversation. And I just think it was the... The darkness of the detail, without any remorse, without any facial expressions, that may have been the medication, you know, that was controlling. He it was, you know, it was often flicking the tongue. His eyes were kind of moving. And I just felt more and more uncomfortable because I was asking more and more tougher questions to him, if you like. Mm. That I felt that he was feeling uncomfortable. And I think nearing the end of the interview, he was starting to behave in a way where... You couldn't see it off camera. Um, And then I think the camera panned to me because he was behaving in a way where he weren't answering my questions anymore. And he was looking at me like you're looking at me now, Jack, with that kind of shock horror. And I thought, we need to cut this. And that's why I thought he'd flip out. He didn't, but he, he he was shuffling in his chair a lot more than he was at the, at the beginning of the interview. And that's because I, I was, you know, pushing him. He, you know, it's not often you sit down with a person in any crime and they tell you they destroyed a woman yeah when they killed them i mean there's one thing to sort of say i killed them i shot them i strangled them and they give you that detail and that in itself is not nice to hear no but use the word destroy and then talk about sodomy how the other guys in, in such a bland way uh, and then blame it on your mental state which is acceptable if that's the case because i wouldn't you know but i imagine sometimes they use it as a get out of jail free card that's what i felt about him yeah Really, I do. I think he 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 was diagnosed with with this condition while he was in prison. I think it's a condition. I'm no therapist, but I do think, based on the conversation I had with him and the guards after and other prisoners, I do think it's something that has manifested itself more since he's been in prison than what it was on the outside. Maybe it was managed on the outside because he was free and he wasn't cocooned in this space in prison it did manifest itself, which is why he was in, boy, I'm, I, I can't, the, the prison that he was in was so locked up. You know, it was like this, it was like, uh, I, I, I can't even describe it. It was like walls and then walls and then walls and then walls and then the cell block. And there was like a handful of prisoners in there who were deemed to be Mauritius most dangerous. This prison had been closed down and they reopened it. Wall, wall, think about it, wall, 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 and then cell block. And he was in there. So, and it took some to get into him, going through these cages and going into his cell to meet him. So that gives you a sense of how ruthless and dangerous he he was um but i do think that his psychotic behavior manifest in prison because he was in that space not because of the crimes he committed initially but because of the crimes he committed whilst he's been in prison mm. that's why he was taken out of the normal population the hard one that we were in to this other one wow what a what a, what a monster i guess why is someone like that willing to talk to you I know you've said before a lot of the prisons just like to be on camera, but why would he? Like, surely he's getting nothing out of it. I, I, I wouldn't agree that a lot of the prisoners want to be on camera. I, I, a lot of prisoners don't want to be on camera. What I think they, they agree to do is share their story. Not many people ask them what really happened, who they really are, what they really think. They're always, in my view, being told what to think, how to behave. Um, 
or to hide who they really are. And I think for the very first time for many of these guys, especially in some of these underdeveloped countries, if you like, or lack resources, so they don't have therapists going in and speaking to them or working on their mental state, I think for the first time they're being asked questions about themselves that they've never been asked before. And and I think that's one of the reasons that they're prepared to talk to me because here's a chance for them for the very first time to sort of say, this is what I did, why I did it, how I did it. Because um, I don't think any of the guys that I've met in in any of the episodes glorify their, their crimes. There may have been one or two, it sounds like it. I mean, M. Pitti, who mm. was the rapist in, in, in the Lesotho episode, I think, you know, he's like, Jack the car, she wouldn't give me it, so we decided to take her and, and rape her. And it's like, you can't fucking do that. You had the car, why did you do that? And I don't even think he was glorifying his crime. He was justifying his actions. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think it's really about the very first time they've had someone ask them what they've never been asked before. And it, and it might just be a case of their moment in the sun, their, 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 their time to shine, their 15 minutes. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Imagine yeah. if you get asked to be interviewed now, you'll do it. Imagine being locked up for 10, 15 years and then someone coming and wanting to speak to you. That's true. Even yeah. though sometimes I, I do get the impression that they, you know, some of these people have never watched Netflix. I've met guys that have been in prison for 15 years. Netflix didn't exist then, so they don't even know what it is. All they know is there's a camera, a Western crew coming in, especially Mm. if it's in a foreign country, and they see it that they're going to be on television. Yeah, we we go, you know, great length to to get the consents. You know, we don't just go in and interview people. We make sure everybody knows exactly what they're doing, what they're taking part in, where it's going to be broadcast, etc., etc. We get it all videoed and everything after the interview. There's one person who stays there and just videos their consent to make sure that they understand completely what we're doing and why we're doing what we're doing. And it's a great show. Inside the World's Toughest Prisons um, with Raphael Rowe out on Netflix now. Series four. Can we expect to see a series five anytime? Little wink there from Raphael across the table. Raphael, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming in and being so open, uh, uh, not only about the prisons, but also your experience as well. It's been an absolute eye-opener. I've loved every minute of it, so thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And uh, just a question that we finish on uh, with all of our guests on Series 4. Answer as you please. Raphael, what is the meaning of life? That's my answer. (laughs) That's my answer. <laughs> you don't know? Make it up as you go along. Perfect. There we go. This has been Jack Makes Happy Hour. Stevie, thank you very much. That's all right. Raphael, thank you. And we'll see you next week. Jack Makes Happy Hour. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.